Members of the jury, I understand you have a verdict. Members of the jury, I will now read the verdicts as they will appear in the permanent records of the 4th Judicial District. State of Minnesota, County of Hennepin, District Court, 4th Judicial District. State of Minnesota Plaintiff versus Derek Michael Chauvin, Defendant. Verdict, Count 1, Court File Number 27, CR 20-12646. We, the jury, in the above entitled matter as to Count 1, unintentional second-degree murder while committing a felony, find the defendant guilty. This verdict agreed to this 20th day of April, 2021 at 1.44 p.m. Signed juror four person, juror number 19. Same caption, verdict count two. We the jury in the above entitled matter as to count two, third degree murder perpetrating an eminently dangerous act, find the defendant guilty. This verdict agreed to this 20th day of April, 2021 at 1.45 p.m. Signed by jury four person, juror number 19. Same caption, verdict count three. We, the jury, in the above entitled matter as to count three, second-degree manslaughter, culpable negligence, creating an unreasonable risk, find the defendant guilty. This verdict agreed to this 20th day of April, 2021, at 1.45 p.m. Jury four person 019. Members of the jury, I'm now going to ask you individually if these are your true and correct verdicts. Please respond yes or no. Juror number two, are these your true and correct verdicts? Yes. Juror number nine, are these your true and correct verdicts? Yes. Juror number 19, are these your true and correct verdicts? Yes. Juror number 27, are these your true and correct verdicts? Yes. Juror number 44, are these your true and correct verdicts? Yes. Juror number 52, are these your true and correct verdicts? Yes. Juror number 55, are these your true and correct verdicts? Yes. Juror number 79, are these your true and correct verdicts? Yes. Juror number 85, are these your true and correct verdicts? Yes. Juror number 89, is this your, are these your true and correct verdicts? Yes. Juror number 91, are these your true and correct verdicts? Yes. Juror number 92, are these your true and correct verdicts? Yes. Are these your verdicts, so say you one, so say you all? Yes. yes. Members of the jury, I find that uh, the verdicts as read reflect the will of the jury and will be filed accordingly. I have to thank you on behalf of the people of the state of Minnesota for not only jury service, but heavy duty jury service. What I'm gonna ask you to do now is to follow the deputy back into your usual room and I will join you in a few minutes to answer questions and to advise you further. So all rise for the jury. seated with the guilty verdicts returned we're going to have uh blakely you may file a uh, written argument as to blakely factors within one week the court will issue findings on the blakely factors the factual findings one week after that we'll order a psi immediately returnable in four weeks and we will also have a briefing on after you get the psi six weeks from now and then eight weeks from now we will have sentencing we'll get you the exact dates uh 
in a scheduling order. Is there a motion on behalf of the state? The state would move to have the court uh, revoke the defendant's bail and remand him into custody uh, pending sentencing. Bail is revoked, bond is discharged, and the defendant is remanded to the custody of the Hennepin County Sheriff. Anything further? Oh, yeah. Thank you. Derek Chauvin, convicted on all three counts, guilty of second. All right. My name is Ben Burgess. This is Give Them an Argument. I am uh, joined today uh, by uh, two of our favorite uh, returning guests, uh, Pascal Robert and uh, Jason Miles uh, from uh, the This Is Revolution uh, podcast. Uh, and uh, we are here to talk a little bit about both uh, that, that verdict uh, and uh, and some broader issues about um, you know ongoing uh, political struggles over you know police reform uh, and uh, and how this fits into how the left is thinking more broadly about you know race and class and you know criminal justice uh, and um, related issues. Uh, I should say we would have done this stream. Um, well, I don't know. Maybe the, uh, these guys wouldn't have been able to come anyway, so it's better that we didn't. But we would have done this stream uh, yesterday, but I was uh, still in the car uh, until uh, <laughs> late last night. Uh, I was in uh, Florida to uh, debate Gene Epstein at uh, the, uh, uh, the the Villages, uh, so which is a very strange place, uh, you know. Were you, near, were you near Pascal? Were you in Miami area? <laughs> Uh, no, no. Uh, Miami is, um, you know, like Miami, like the villages is like suburban Orlando, you know, it's, it's, oh. it's, a, it's a big, it's a big hike from there to Miami. I actually did live in Miami for uh, six and a half years. I went to uh, uh, graduate school there and I was graduate school in Miami. Where'd you go to school? Yeah. Yeah. The, uh, do it. Do it. There you go. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you got your doctor from the University of Miami? Yep. I did not know that. Ben, oh, so you 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 suffered the uh, inconsequent the consequential horror of living in South Florida for quite a long time. Quite a long time, yeah, yeah, six and a half years all told. A little bit of that was I after. Did not I know that you got your PhD from University of Miami, man. Mm -hmm. Oh man, we have a lot to talk about. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Um, yeah, I was, uh, you know. It was a uh, much less uh, politically active period of my life, but I did get kicked out of a uh, uh, Cuban restaurant uh, once for uh, for for. Uh, I mean, I was being I was being an asshole, you know. But I, I had a. Uh, it was like the scene and do the right thing. It was like, why is there no white people on the wall? <laughs> no, he was like, how come Chase not on the wall? How come Fidel's on the wall? Yeah, no, no, it was yeah, exactly. It was more like that. I was I was at uh, I was meeting a friend there, but I was wearing my. Um, in uh, 2007 in Miami, I was wearing around a uh, uh, Hugo Chavez as my president T-shirt. Uh, oh. So it's, it's probably lucky that that's the worst thing that happened to me, you know, <laughs> you know because of that. <laughs> but um, but yeah, so I, I, I did live there for uh, for quite some time. But yeah, the villages is in suburban Orlando. It is this giant, uh, sprawling, uh, planned community. Uh, you have to be over 55 to uh, to live There's there. A lot of that there. I used to actually own property outside of Kissimmee uh, in the Orlando area. There's a there's a lot of those over 55 
yeah. gated was it gated to yeah 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 exactly yeah. so it's 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 the villages i think there are like uh 80 different like sort of gated sub communities uh and uh there are like tons of people there who they're like main form of transportation is golf carts so i saw more golf carts over the weekend than the previous 41 <laughs> years of my life uh it's a it's a very strange place and it was like you know 80 per like it was like 70 or 80 percent voted for trump there and um and i i was there at uh so there's something called the uh the soho forum which is a uh, debate series that as the name suggests was always in new york but they they relocated it down there a little while ago and uh you know but it's it's like a very like the people who run it, you know, are libertarians and Epstein is a libertarian and I was down there to debate him. So as you can, as you can imagine, out of like 200 and change people in that audience, you know, there were like maybe like 10 guys who were, you know, like, you know, yeah, man, for you. you know. <laughs> how, did it, how did it go? Uh, pretty well, I think. So uh, he had, uh, he'd done similar debates, I think, uh, so about two years ago with Bhaskar and oh. uh, old, like I think very early 2020 with Richard Wolf and um, you know Wolf uh, who you know no no shade on Richard Wolf you know I'm, I'm you know he's he's been on the show I like him a lot but he uh, uh, he's a busy guy and I think that he did not watch the Bhaskar one before he did his uh, and. Oh. Um, so all of which is just to say that I think I was at an advantage because I watched both Boscar's and, and Wolf's, you know, beforehand. And I kind of knew what, he, what Gene you was going to say. You watch game film. Yeah, 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 exactly. It's like reviewing, <laughs> you know, it's like one of those, film. like, yeah, it's like one of those high schools in Texas where, you know, the college, <laughs> like the football players can get class credit for reviewing game tape, you know, <laughs> like it's, uh, yeah, yeah. So, uh, so, so I, I feel you know, I feel pretty, uh, yeah, I feel pretty decent about it. We'll see, you know, we'll see what people think when it goes up on YouTube, which I think is going to happen. And like, uh, on Monday, they said like a week to 10 days, somehow, like they send the film to, uh, reason and reason puts it up on their, their YouTube mm. channel. Um, you know, but, uh, my, um, you know, at least I did manage to make even that deeply unsympathetic audience laugh a couple times. So one of them was, uh, uh, because uh, so I'd, I'd mentioned that um, one of my favorite just random trivia things that uh, when uh, Noam Chomsky debated Michel Foucault in 1971, uh -huh. uh, Foucault uh, <laughs> uh, successfully requested to be paid in hash. Uh, and so supposedly, you know, uh, between that, or, you know, or supposedly he did, you know, allegedly. And, uh, and he had, uh, when he and his friends would bust it out, you know, from thereafter until it was all smoked, you know, they'd, they'd like make a you know big deal of like kind of snickering that they were smoking the Chomsky hash. Uh, and so I said, uh, of course, as a good, you know, statist, a uh, anti-libertarian, you know, I asked, you know, I, I didn't get my honorarium, some barter system thing like that. I got it in, um, you know, good old, you know, government backed fiat currency, but uh uh, I was going to spend some of it on buying a nice bottle of whiskey. Of course, I probably wouldn't call it the uh, the Epstein whiskey uh, because uh, you know Gene Epstein is not currently the world's most famous Epstein. But exactly. uh, so so that uh, you know that got a little you know. But um, 
but in any case, no, it was, it was, it was fun. I mean, it was, it was a good, um, it was a good thing to, um, you know, it was, it was a good thing to do. And, you know, they were, uh, you know, they were good natured about it, and, you know, and it was, it was a good, like surreal, weird thing to, uh, to be in the, you know, villages for a couple days. Um, but, uh, you know, yeah, I mean, it's a obviously, you know, upper income, you know, older white Republicans. I mean, that's pretty much who lives there, you know, but, uh, definitely some parts of Florida like that. Yeah. (laughs) But, uh, yeah. Um, lower income Republicans in Florida too. Yeah. Well, that's, that's, that's also parts of Florida like that. You know, one of the things that I always thought was the most interesting about the election last fall is that uh, Donald Trump won the state, but uh, the $15 minimum wage actually won by more yeah. Trump did, uh, which which suggests that, you know, that there's some overlap there. Um, but, uh, but in any case, I was on the, uh, I was on the road. I was on my way back to, uh, to Michigan uh, yesterday when uh, the news broke uh, about uh, Derek Chauvin, mm-hmm. uh, got back into East Lansing, late last night actually still don't have the computer I normally use for this which is why my image probably looks a little bit different, you know, but, uh, but uh, in any case, yep. Cat's got a lot to, uh, <laughs> yeah, we should, uh, you know, we should talk about this. Cause I think there, I think there's a, uh, there's a lot to talk about. I do think that uh, this is one of the cases where um, as happens from time to time uh, when uh, the, uh, the common, some of the best commentary was from the onion, where their headline was oh, uh, depressed police officer reminds self that Chauvin verdict, not representative of system at large. Um, you know, so uh, as you, uh, as you scroll down says uh, Minneapolis shaken by guilty verdict uh, delivered in the trial of Derek Chauvin, local police officer, Edward Morgolan took comfort Tuesday by remembering this outcome wasn't representative of the system at large. Moments like this could be tough, but it helps to take a step back and remember that this is the exception that proves the rule, said Margolin, confirming that despite the conviction, he still believed in the justice system's fundamental purpose of uh, exonerating police officers. Uh, which, which, which does, you know, which, which does some, uh, you know, sum a lot of it up. I, I think, unfortunately, that uh, this is this is something, and you know, we we can talk about. Um, whether it's entirely politically healthy, the you know the way that we that we focus on and process these spectacles. I know Pascal's gonna have stuff to say about that, but uh, but I think that you know it is also uh, you know I mean it's it's something that I think a lot of people are determined to kind of miss a pretty obvious uh, point about right. You know, since I'll, I'll sometimes hear things, uh, you know see above, right? I spend a lot of time talking to people I disagree with. Uh, I I sometimes hear things like, uh, oh, well, you know, so few people when you break down the statistics are really killed by, uh, by cops that it's, it's a very, uh, you know, it's a relatively minor uh, problem. Mm -hmm. And, and I think of course uh, it's true that as causes of death go, it's, it's, it's very low. I think it's also representative of much bigger pattern of abusive behavior. Uh, But it's also true that, uh, I think that a public official openly killing someone and um, and getting away with it, which is what usually happens, uh, is is pretty bad, right? I mean, like I think there's there's a there's a democracy problem there, you know, when mm-hmm. that can, you know when that can just uh, when that can just happen uh, without uh, without meaningful consequences. Um, 
And so, yeah, yeah. Uh, so, uh, so I think that, you know, this, this is, uh, I mean, from my perspective, at least, right. I'll, I'll throw to you guys, but I mean, I, I think that, uh, it is good news, uh, as far as we, as, as far as it goes, um, you know, this is, I, I, I do think that I do see some tension in the views of some people about this because, uh, because I, I do see some like online lefties who, you know, six days out of the week are prison abolitionists and, and, and one day of the week, you know, uh, what, uh, Pro prison. Yeah. Yeah. What, yeah, what, yeah. That's, that's, I, I have an issue with that too. Uh, because I, I always see that that same sentiment gets reversed when the situation is different. Right. Um, recently, uh, not too far from where I grew up in a city called Richmond, California, uh, there was a situation in one of the homeless hotels where a, and we talked about this before on the show, Pascal, where there was a, a couple that had a child that was about six weeks old, I believe. And they took the child to the hospital was having breathing problems. And the doctor finds out, well, this kid's malnourished. And <clears throat> the couple got arrested for pretty much murdering their, their newborn. Uh, the kid died uh, on, on the site. And when the cops came in, uh, to check out the room, they found uh, meth paraphernalia, and and the couple gets arrested for uh, for for murder. And there was a lot of the same sentiment that I see with with this Chauvin trial um, with these with these parents. So, as someone that I, I wouldn't call myself an abolitionist, but I do respect a lot of yeah that that point of view because when you when you work with certain populations you know you can't just lock up bad behavior <laughs> or things that you don't like all the time um, which is what i think we see with a lot of uh of this policing is a lot of it is policing uh, poverty and that's why i get kind of frustrated uh when i hear things like well if we just had social workers there or if you just took their guns away I'm like, well, you, now you're just trying to get a nicer face on the policing of poverty. Yeah, well, and, and I think that is a really important point because, uh, and and you know, I, I mean, I'm, I'm a little conflicted about this uh, because I think that when when people talk uh, about uh, defunding the police, I think I agree with 99% of what they're saying, but the thing that I feel a little uneasy about is that uh, sometimes it is portrayed as if, um, you know, you could sort of keep everything else constant and <laughs> shift around some municipal budget lines and you, you get a, um, a big improvement in, in all of this. And, and I think it is worth remembering uh, that if you look back, uh, I mean, I'm thinking about some stuff that I think I've seen from like, uh, Cedric Johnson, for example, writing about this, you know, that like if you look back, you know, sort of in the seventies, maybe, you know, when, when a lot of this, this turn towards more aggressive yeah. uh, policing and carceral regime, you know, happened, uh, it was, you know, like, like sometimes there's this, there's some slightly overstated mythology on, on, uh, on the left where we'll say, Oh, there really wasn't that much, you know, bad crime going on then, you know, it was, it was really, you know, it's, it's, uh, like we'll we'll sort of just entirely kind of blame it on certain kinds of uh, cultural shifts that you know everybody just kind of became a lot more racist you know suddenly or something like that and I think that the more accurate thing to say about that is that for elites at the time 
um, in a you know in a bipartisan way, it was uh, much cheaper in every sense to uh, tackle a lot of the social ills that come from poverty with uh, more aggressive policing and incarceration mm -hmm. than to tackle them with by expanding you know the great society and you know the welfare state, uh, and the fact is that like above and beyond anything else. Uh, even like the NYPD, you know, it's it's one of the most bloated, you know, police departments in the world. But you know, like you could, you know, you could take, you could eliminate the budget of the mm -hmm. NYPD, and the amount of money that people think that that would free up is a lot less than than it actually would. I mean, like like you couldn't even. I mean, I think you could uh, you could do you could eliminate the. I did some like back of the envelope math for an article for Jacobin last summer about this. And I think you could eliminate the entire budget of the uh, of the NYPD, and you wouldn't even equalize like educational spending between the richest uh, mm -hmm. and the poorest school districts in New York. Uh, and certainly, you know, you wouldn't have a lot left over for these counselors and social workers. And again, you need like like I think you say with the counselors and the social workers. I don't entirely disagree with the underlying point. Like, I, I think it is, there are a yeah, lot. Yeah, who, yeah. But yeah. how is it, my, my, this is my thing. Um, how is it going to look in real time? And being someone that's actually worked in an environment where I was told to call counselors, yeah. where I actually saw the counselors come out. And, it, and this isn't meant to be some sort of disrespectful comment on the counselors. It's just yeah. more how systems run. Usually, these things are farmed out to third parties. Oh. And they're going to not want to spend any money because all this shit is massively underfunded. So you're talking about kids generally yeah. coming out, trying to talk to adults that have had drug problems and chronic homelessness longer than these people have been on the planet. I'm not saying they're entirely inept, but there's a bit of a problem with, with that. And I don't know if I've told this story on the show. I told it on, the, on another show or even it was our show. I can't remember. We had a situation where I was told to call someone's mental health response team. And the response that I got was a woman was being a little, she was being very unruly and she had, she said she had a knife. I didn't see one, but she was starting fights and, you can only do so much, right? So I'm like, did I call the mental health team? Perfect. Because I don't want to call the police and say there's a woman here with a knife. And so the mental health team says, we're not coming. It's 4 o'clock on a Friday. We're not coming. Call the cops. That's what they said. They said, call the cops. Yeah, right. So, I, I mean, like, I, I think there are a couple things here. One is, uh, and I, you kind of alluded to this earlier, right? Like, uh, counsel, like, Counselors hired by who? Social workers hired by who? Right? Like, are, are these direct city employees? Uh, are are these contractors? Is is going to be the case very often, especially because, like, they, we're not actually talking about very much money, and uh, uh, you know when we're shifting around, you know, the uh, those budget lines, um, and then uh, so so that's definitely one issue, and then the other issue is again, I mean, like, I, I, this is like I think maybe the most like simple-minded possible leftist point about this, but it's also, you know, correct that uh, you like really the alternative to, and you know, there are tons of like specific reforms we could talk about that I think would help a lot. Right. But like 
in broad brush, the alternative to managing the social ills created by poverty, uh, you know, with with aggressive policing and incarceration, uh, shouldn't be. Let's find like a softer way for for the state to manage these things. It should be let's do something about the poverty. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's never that's never the case, um, which is which is you know highly frustrating because. Again, I'm not saying this because I don't think we shouldn't have these types of people, but I think when people make that ask and make that demand, you really have to understand that when you go walk away and say, okay, we got the social workers, they're going to be an underfunded arm of law enforcement, an unarmed arm of law enforcement. So where you might not have the kneeling on necks and and unnecessary shootings, you're still going to have people policing poverty just because you're an authority figure to a lot of these cats they don't want to fucking listen to you nobody cares if you have a gun or not you're still you're still the man that's telling them that their life is wrong a life that something you can't avoid i'm gonna shut up now i'm talking too much of pascal's he's talking I think the most important book that can be read to talk about the phenomenon of the carceral state punitive policing in the post-civil rights era, its consequences, contrary to what people will believe, is not the new Jim Crow, but is Punishing the Poor, the Neoliberal Government of Social Insecurity by Louis Wakant, which basically is a very, very effective materialist analysis of what exactly is the function of policing in the carceral state. I think that one of the problems I have with all of these reformist policies, abolish the police, uh, defund the police, None of them are rooted in the political economy of what is the function of policing in the United States, what is the nature of the political economy of poverty in most of the cities in which more people are housed, what is the class dynamics of the individuals who are incarcerated, and what exactly does it mean when you have an economic paradigm in American society that is making people redundant, surplus, reserve, reserve army of labor, and the function of police is to discipline the poor and the reserve army of labor and prepare them to be housed and socially exiled in prison. That is a function of policing in every in, in a capitalist society generally. And one of the reasons why policing has increased in its brutality and its funding through military weaponry in the last 50 years is that the shift in the economy that took place, particularly in the Nixon administration, moving away from the gold standard, the Bretton Woods Accords, the shifting nature of the way in which capitalism was reorganizing itself, and the way in which social, you know, uh, state-sponsored financing of government, government largesse, visa the New Deal, and Great Society, was completely out of play with the way the way in which America was economically uh, organizing itself there was a basic understanding for a variety of reasons. One, as was documented by the Nixon administration aide, I forgot his actual name, who quoted that, yes, there was a political motivation behind mass incarceration in that Nixon wanted to use a tool to neutralize the radical, uh, rebellious, uh, insurrectionist forces of the black radical left, as well as the white left that was challenging uh, um, the uh, Vietnam War. So yes, that's definitely a part of it as well. But part of the problem of minimizing and racializing 
the nature of mass incarceration, which is profoundly racialized, but capitalism in America is racialized for the, for the purpose that we talk about often on This Is Revolution, and I think that Ben would have no question, is that capitalism is racialized to disproportionately render black and brown people to the surplus redundant reserve army and labor of labor to manufacture in the consciousness of the majority who is white. The system does not fail for them. What, what Milton Friedman called the natural rate of unemployment or what is called the Nairu, basically arguing that in order to temper down inflation, you cannot have full employment in capitalism. You must have unemployment. And if you must have unemployment, then there's gonna be social dis dislocation and dysfun dysfunctionality that comes across with the, the aspects or elements or members of society that are rendered to that reserve army of labor. That's why we have this thing in American economy, economics called the NIRU, which I forgot the full acronym, but it's basically a consistent measurement of what the unemployment rate has to be in American society to avoid inflation. And one of the constant realities now, surprisingly, if Karl Marx agrees that you have to have a reserve army of labor, and the most vicious neoliberal capitalist, Milton Friedman, agrees that, oh my God, we have to have a national rate of unemployment. Oh my God, does that mean that Milton Friedman is a secret Marxist who agrees that we can't have full employment in America? No, what it means is that there's actually some aspects of Marxism that is true economically. And what is actually the reality, and I don't think there's any econo economist who would deny this, whether he's in neoliberalism. As a matter of fact, there was an article in the Center for American Progress that literally said, stated recently, I, I Googled it and looked it up, that the black-white unemployment gap, not, not income gap, but unemployed gap, unemployment gap is built into the system. That black unemployment has been almost at least twice and almost twice the rate of white unemployment almost consistently for 50, at least in the post-civil rights era for at least 50 years, probably going back to above that. So again, all of the social dislocation and quote-unquote pathology that black conservatives like to blame on poor black people is part of the social consequence of dislocation, of rendering disproportionately black people to the reserve army of labor and having them to be forced to have to be disciplined in the last 50 years in what is an increasingly precarious economic system in which they have to be crushed in the skull and in the body by the cops to protect the fact that jobs, labor, economics, and wages are becoming more precarious for poor and working class people. Yeah, uh, so I, I think there are a couple of uh, of different threads of that 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 are worth um, you know that are worth picking up. I, I mean, I, I and like I mean the Milton Friedman thing doesn't surprise me. In fact, I think it's like often astonishing uh, how how honest. Uh, ruling class economic commentators are about this stuff, especially when they're they're, you know, I mean, I, I know this is going to sort of veer into sounding like sort of vulgar Marxist thing, like I think they're smoke filled rooms or something, but like like really like, especially when they're talking to each other, right? Like mm -hmm. that uh, that that when when it's not for you know it's it's not for mass you know mass consumption, they're they're just kind of chatting among themselves. Although I think that there's Uh, there's stuff that lets the cat out of the bag that we, we've seen a lot lately, like um, this thing, especially I feel like in the last few weeks uh, with the 
uh, obsessive right wing talking point is this thing about how uh, uh, oh. Um, you know, all these businesses are understaffed because, you know, because they just can't compete with unemployment benefits, uh, which, uh, which, which is a, like above and beyond everything else that's, you know, factually or morally wrong with that is a astonishingly honest admission that uh, you don't actually expect people to, uh, to show up uh, to, uh, you know, to lower end working class jobs of their own free will. You think that, you know, you, you need them to be economically desperate enough that they have to. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, so yeah, that, that yeah, 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 the free marketeers will say, well, since the demand for labor is low to fill the jobs, or doesn't that mean that labor has to increase the wages to satisfy the, the lack of actual demand? Isn't that the logical capitalist principle? Is that if you don't have, I mean, supply, excuse me, if you don't have a supply of labor because they won't work at the low price, then we have to increase the price, but they'll never say that. No, never. no I don't. They, it's uh, never well, part of the equation. No. Greedy people, right? If the supply is labor low, the natural, natural consequence, increase the wages. No, we can't do that. What are you talking about? This is capitalism. But we'll, we'll, we'll definitely use machine technology to, to replace these people because, you know, that works for us. Well, you would have done that anyway. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, that, the idea that it's going to be possible to, uh, to like, when I remember, uh, a couple of years ago when they were starting to introduce a few years ago, I guess when they were starting to introduce the uh, machines at McDonald's uh, that, uh, that you could like the touch screen order machines. Uh, I remember uh, seeing people, you know, libertarianish people posting, uh, Oh, you know, like these memes that have like a picture of that machine. It would say, Oh, you want $15 an hour, you know, mm-hmm. meet your replacement. And I remember thinking, it's like, really, you believe that it's possible to win a race to the bottom with this machine, you know, for, for inexpensiveness, you know, that like, I'm pretty sure that you could literally not pay people at all and, and just, you know, maybe, you know, give them a place to stay and then like hire an armed guard to make sure they didn't leave. It would still be more expensive. Oh, I have a, I have a fucking machine. I have a degenerate Negro capitalist friend. I know who's always talking about how, uh, you know, oh, oh, oh you know, raising raising the the minimum wage is atrocious. This, by the way, is a guy whose whole life was bankrolled by the fact that his mom was a, a union employee as a nurse. But the larger point is is that uh, I said, well, that's because you know a parasite like you, even if you had slave labor, you'd fire them for machines because you'd be worried that they'd dirty your toilets when they use the toilet use the bathroom. <laughs> and he literally said, well, you know, I don't like dirty toilets. I know because you're a, wow. a van- you're a vampire wow. degenerate. <laughs> When, when I was working in North Dakota, and this was, Jesus, 2010 or so, 2011, uh, McDonald's people were making $20 an hour, and they had to pay for their room and board because there was nowhere for them to uh, to stay. They weren't local townspeople. They had to fly and work for McDonald's. So, I mean... Uh, I, I do also uh, want to uh, want to plug. Uh, I think one of the smartest things that I remember reading last summer uh, about uh, about police killings and the larger you know dynamics of um, of aggressive militarized policing, you know, and uh, mass incarceration, which was a article in uh, Dissent uh, magazine, uh, which uh, which which can be a little hit or miss. I do not love their Latin America coverage. But they, uh, they, they do. Let me post a link to that book, which I think is very important. Oh, Money yeah. Not punishing the poor. Yep. You, you uh, get that, man, or you Yeah, Forrest, can you, can you get that and I'll, I'll share the screen. But yeah, the uh, 
so the article uh, the article I'm talking about is uh, by uh, oh, Barbara Fields, Fields and uh, Adam Rothman. It's called uh, "The Death of Hannah Pfizer," um, and and it's a really like good. It's it's like a fairly short article, uh, but it's it's like something that I often wish that I could make like like strap all of my liberal friends down like the kid in you know clockwork orange you know with the eyes you know uh, <laughs> open uh to to force them to read this article because uh, it's uh it's such a uh, it's such a good overview of the uh, the dynamics of you know the um like the element of racialization that Pascal's talking about, but also uh, the, uh, the the larger uh, the larger economic dynamics that he was also talking about of uh, of this this turn towards you know aggressive militarized policing and you know and, and mass incarceration, um, and uh, and you know the, the case that you know that uh, that Fields uh, who and you know people aren't haven't read um, you know what Barbara Fields and her sister have written, you know, elsewhere, you know, should, should go out and read it all. It's all really good. But um, it's, is that uh, there is uh, that, you know, black people disproportionately suffer from the effects of, of aggressive militarized police and mass incarceration because black people disproportionately live in poor neighborhoods and poor neighborhoods disproportionately suffer the effects of that kind of policing and car, you know, carceral, uh, you know, regime, uh, but uh, but it, it's something that has uh, you know, like I, I think if you um, purely focus on on the racial dimension of it, you know, you miss something that's really important about you know the the larger uh, larger issues. So, uh, uh, Hannah Pfizer, uh, you know, was uh, a uh, a woman in Missouri uh, who uh, who ran a red light. Uh, according to police reports, she was uh, non-compliant uh, and threatened the officers. The officers shot and killed her. In fact, Pfizer did not have a gun. Now that she's dead, could not tell her side of the story. Um, and uh, you know, Pfizer was a, you know was a poor white woman. But uh, the uh, you know the the way that Rothman and Pfizer frame it, right? It's certainly racially disproportionate, you know, because of America's you know apartheid history. But it's also uh, but you know there is this there is this larger dynamic there, and and that one that should maybe inform the political strategy that could actually uh, start to uh, to do something about all of that, you know. And so uh, they go back to they talk about the um, you know the lead up to uh, to the Civil War and the politics of the uh, of the early uh, Republican primary, um, and if you know there's this paragraph in there that I always really loved, which is therefore those seeking genuine democracy might, must fight like hell to convince white Americans that what is good for black people is also good for them. Reining in murderous police, investing in schools rather than prisons, uh, providing universal health care, including drug treatment and rehabilitation for addicts in the rural heartland, raising taxes on the rich and ending foolish wars are policies that could benefit a solid majority of the American people. Such an agenda could be the basis for a successful political coalition rooted in the real conditions of American life, which were disastrous before the pandemic and are now catastrophic. Uh, so anyway, I, I would recommend it. I mean, I, that I've been in the heartland. I spent too many years in the heartland and also places like West Virginia and uh, being a kid from, from California, from a relatively decent sized city, you know, of course I look at these problems of inequality as extremely racialized mm -hmm. because that's the only lens that I really saw it through. 
and and working in the Gulf of Mexico and then also working in North Dakota. Um, and there's certain parts of the Gulf of Mexico where there was there was nothing but uh, they call them coon asses is, is the term, but it's like white Cajuns in the swamp. And uh, a lot of these guys couldn't read. And it kind of fucked my head up because I had never seen that before. And they hated police. And they had warrants and baby mamas and drug problems and <laughs> and all the shit that we think uh, only happens in in certain urban areas. But you know these kind of police killings happen. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I was also just going to throw in, you know, when Pascal yeah. was talking about the sort of uh, conservative culturalism about the uh, you know pathologies of uh, of the uh, the urban poor, they like. I think something that's been really interesting to see in like about the last five years is, uh, is conservatives and, you know, also liberals in many cases uh, adopted exactly the same rhetoric that they mm-hmm. always used about black people in cities to, yeah. uh, to, to underclass to- ideology, underclass yeah. ideology with the rise, with the potential fear of the rise of Trump, you found white, you found uh, white conservatives. As a matter of fact, there was an article in the national review uh, to this, to this particular point. And I remember uh, the neoliberal CNN talking, talking, uh, talking Android. What's his name? Uh, Fried Zakaria wrote an article <laughs> as well, uh, making the same point that you know, listen, the white poor are degenerates. They can't be saved. Yep. They're all jacked up, and you know, yep. you know, they, which is ironic, right? Because part of what this is one, a consistent theme that we have at this is revolution podcast is what we call the 50-year counter-revolution i think you've heard us use this term before ben that we basically talk about how 50 years from say the death of uh, uh martin luther king with the rise of nixon and onward there was a bipartisan consensus rooted in political economy and politics that was a pushback against not the new deal civil rights coalition and all the politics that came along with that and that Contrary to the normative function of the Republican Party, started with Nixon, there was a courting of the white working class, you know, the hard hat rebellion and all mm. of this. And, you know, it's like, you know, the, you know, we are loyal. These are our people. You know, don't let these darkies come here and and and, and these hippies with their long hair uh, tarnish our great country. You know, you're union men. You know, Nixon was very strong about this, as a matter of fact. Reagan with the Reagan Democrats, again. So... Clinton, with the 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 third way politics, with third way politics that comes along with the rise of the DLC, which is actually a result of a polling data state the state data polling study that showed that uh, because of the Democratic Party's perception as being the party of black people, white working class people were being turned away and becoming conservative, starting with you know the the, the run of Jesse Jackson in '84 going on to '88. With Mondale, with '88, with uh, Dukakis, and that you know the Democrats had to shift away from this. So you know Bill Clinton again accepting his nomination from the DLC in front of um, Stone Mountain Prison. Uh, you know, uh, uh, you know uh, uh, the um, the uh, assassination or the murder of Ricky Ray Rector that goes on uh, under Clinton, while Clinton is running. Uh, who was yeah. a man who was almost lobotomized in terms of his mental functionality, tough on crime, you know, uh, well, you know, uh, no more welfare, welfare reform. All of that posture was an intentional pivot. It starts a little bit with Carter, actually, but not as excessively 
that actually begin with the rise of the third way neoliberal order uh, post Reagan with Clinton that really, really doubles down even worse on Nixonian and Reaganite policy vis-a-vis -vis poverty and crime to present to the lords of capital and the financiers of politics and the you know, my position on government is the government serves the purpose of the function of capital in America, that the 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 the, the Democrats were willing to play ball now. Enough with this, you know, right civil rights stuff, the you know, the blacks and all this other stuff, and you know, and the women. We're here, we're down with big capital. And one of the consequences of that was that the carceral state expanded and the financing of police in the police state became more aggressive and became worse. And because all of this counter-revolution, and what took us here was about working class, poor people, and the, and the return to underclass ideology, is that in that 50-year history, after neoliberalism, after NAFTA, after GATT, after the gutting of our working class jobs after the gutting of factory with the rise of you know meth labs and alcoholism and rising white suicide. Now, because of the paranoia of Trump, you have white conservatives and white liberals saying, you white poor people are degenerate. Pull up your pants. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, yeah, when right, that, exactly. When that pathologizing urban underclass discourse was used, over the last 50 uh -huh. years, relative to black people, you had black conservatives like Thomas Sowell, Glenn Lowry, black liberals as well, quite frankly, Henry Louis Gates, arguing that the problem is with the black underclass. Bill Cosby. Yeah. And, and, Bill you, Cosby. And, you, and you have, and like, and now you've got like the hillbilly elegy guy who's yeah. feeling exactly, and I mean exactly the same spot. He's, he's just like, He's just the the rural white people Thomas Sowell. What is his name? Oh, oh God, I forget. The white people Thomas Sowell. That just hit me what you said. The uh, uh, the guy, the lawyer or something, right? Yeah, yeah, J.D. Vance. That's the dude. Um, he, uh, yeah. So that was like a big hit after. Um, like he's actually, I think he's running for something as Republican now. Uh, and um, and and it's it's kind of funny because he's actually sort of pandering a little bit to the Trump wing uh, as he's doing it. But in right after the 2016 election, that book was a big hit because uh, it told a lot of uh, liberals and never Trump Republicans what they wanted to hear, uh, which is that people in economically devastated you know places of the Rust Belt and Appalachia, uh, where, uh, where where Trump won. Uh, that we're we're really to the blame, you know, to blame for all of their problems, you know, because of bad culture. Well, the whole listen, the whole first of all, understand something. The origins of the urban underclass or the or culture of poverty discourse goes back to the University of Chicago School of Social Work and Economics in the early 20th century that was shifting away from eugenic explanations for poverty, which were the norm in America from the late 19th century, the early 20th century, and basically realizing that they did not want to admit that political economy is what was the root of poverty. They made a slight shift, particularly with the rise of Nazi Germany, that made eugenics fall out and say that, okay, it's the culture. 
Well, Chicago was always rooted in the kind of the it's the culture that's the problem. This is the, the National American Tory Reed's book demonstrates how the National Urban League actually gets born out of the University of Chicago's social work program with Rosenwald Fund, Rosenwald Trust and Rockefeller Trust funding to basically start the process, this old civil rights organization, of saying, well, the reason why we can't have you Negroes live in the nicer parts of Chicago and New York is because you're culturally defective. You know, so what happens is that that's the beginning of the culturally def contrary to what you know these you know these worthless uh, black conservatives will tell you was like oh it was welfare and the civil rights movement that destroyed black people every time they say that about the destruction of black fa families they ask them and you guys read E Franklin Frazier's studies on the black family in the 1930s where he basically is saying that this is something that exists existed. Well before, well, you know, the Great Society, and well before out of wedlock, I mean, the rate of black out of wedlock birth has been out of wedlock birth has been twice that of whites since the 1800s. So the notion that this is somehow always welfare, it was a state, and it was the moral failing, and this is all rooted to the political economy and the displacement of the capacity of poor working class black men to subsidize large families, and as a result, they may flee and basically not be able to care economically for their condition. The same way, if you look at Italian Americans and Irish Americans who were poor in the early 20th century, particularly in urban areas, they had profoundly high rates of out of wedlock birth. Yeah, I mean, of course. And, and there, there is, like, this has always amazed me because uh, it seems like if you think the chain of cause and effect goes from poverty to broken families, that's pretty easy to see how that goes. Right. Like I think anybody who's just been around people, right, you know, can can like trace out some ways that, you know, that that could that that could happen. The ways that, uh, you know, financial stress and insecurity and instability, you know, make it harder to keep relationships together that, you know, that that there are all sorts of secondary consequences, you know, that, that could lead to that. Uh, whereas what conservatives insist on believing, you know, which is that. Uh, well, if we you, ask, why do they insist on they don't believe it. Yeah, Why yeah, they yeah. say it? They say it because the greedy parasites do not want the state to finance yeah. political economy that lifted most of these, these degenerates like Thomas Sowell into the middle class with things like the GI Bill and the New Deal and Walter White, another black conservative. Yeah, I mean, because because the idea that um, you know, like like a phrase that they like to use is the success sequence. You know, which says that if you uh, uh, you know graduate from school and you wait until you know you was it you wait until after you get married to have kids and there are like a few other things things in it, right? You know, then you'll have um, you know then then you'll uh, you know you'll rise out of uh, out of out of poverty, and it's like. I mean, it's such a weird joke, you know, it's like the, it's, it's, it really is like the equivalent of like one of those examples that they'll give you on the first day of a stats class about correlation and causation. Like, you know, thinking that, um, you know, that the, uh, you know, it's like, okay, you know, there are more snake bites on, you know, days that there are more ice cream sales. Cause both thing happens, both things happen on hot days. That's not cause snakes are attracted <laughs> to ice cream. When their whole argument is reduced to this imbecilic tautology, what is that? Oh, the black poor and the white poor are damaged because they have horrible culture and the culture of the black poor and the white poor is damaged because they are poor. It's, 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 it's absurd. 
Yeah, and, and I should also mention, by the way, that when people do make that, you know, historically illiterate argument about, you know, great society, you know, uh, welfare programs, uh, you know, just, you know, causing uh, out of wedlock births, uh, then, uh, like, I always found that funny because even if you pretend, you know, even if you take that seriously, like, you ask them, okay, why is that, right? What's the mechanism? And what they'll say, and this goes back to what we were saying earlier about like how weirdly honest they can be about some of these things in certain circumstances. What they'll say is, "Oh well, uh, it's because you know um, you know mothers are you know less uh, you know less economically you know dependent on you know on men, so they're more or less likely to you know to stay with them." And so it's like, so you're admitting, right, that like for the purpose of running this bullshit historical argument. Uh, you're acknowledging that, in fact, um, you know, social services, you know, uh, social provision make us, uh, you know, make people more free that, you know, that uh, that this is that, you know, people stay oftentimes in bad or even abusive relationships because they can't afford to move out. Right. You're admitting that this is a thing that happens. You know, you're just, you know, you just think that it's a bad thing. That, that it's a bad thing. By the way, two you very know. good books that help shatter that. The all oh, was the welfare that made. Single parenthood happened in the black community is The Color of Welfare by Jill Quandango, which is a good book here, The Color of Welfare. And another one is called The Undeserving Poor by uh, Michael B. Katz. Another good book here as well, which, you know, really just, you know, destroys this kind of absurd nonsense, particularly, again, if you want to go back to E. Franklin Frazier's and his study of uh, black families well before the Great Society. And you tell me exactly who, and he illustrates how fractured those societies were at that time. You tell me exactly how is it that, uh, oh, the great welfare is what destroyed the breakdown of the black family. Because again, you know, again, we have a lot of nationalists and black people who like to blame, like black people are broken, they're damaged. And they, they, most of them don't realize it is actually a whole damaged thesis Matter of fact, there's a you know a good uh, book written by a historian named Daryl Michael Scott called Contempt and Pity, and the argument of the book is that basically between liberals and conservatives, the, the damage thesis of black people renders them to be contempted, have be uh, victims of contempt by conservatives and pitied by liberals. Neither one of which are actually inter actually interested in solving solving the problems of uh, the black poor and working class. So what ends up being the consequence, right, is that we have this uh, this kind of, uh, you know, uh, two poles of damage thesis where we have that, well, black people are unable to function for themselves. So we've got to give them some charity and philanthropy and fund Black Lives Matter. And, oh, yes, of course. We love all these, these vapid academic disciplines. Oh, yes, intersectionality is wonderful. We need these things. Or that we need more cops to put these undeserving Negroes in prison. Again, Wasn't that the 90s? Again, and the function of this discourse, which black liberals and conservatives, you know, again, both participate in, uh, is to both of them get what I call fat back in bis biscuits or patronage from their respective paymasters to maintain the hierarchy of capitalist power and stop the realization that black people 
suffer from poverty because the political cap political economy economy of American capitalism requires that a disproportionate amount and number of them are rendered to the reserve army of labor. And until we change the nature of the way capitalism functions in this country, that they will never stop, no matter how much goddamn reparations you get or you think you're going to get. Yeah, I mean, and, and of course that. Uh, it's a poor historical point because one of the big defenses that's often trotted out of, um, you know, Bill Clinton, uh, you know, although I, I guess people are slightly less interested in defending, you know, the Clinton administration now, but, you know, they were very recently. And uh, and now, of course, uh, Biden, um, because remember, there are a uh, hundred clips that Forrest could show you of uh, Biden um, uh, referring to the crime bill as the Biden crime bill. Uh, you know, he he loved taking credit for that thing uh, at the uh, at the time, uh, and uh, one of the big defenses of it is, oh no no no, wait a second, but uh, it, it's okay, right? Because it can't be racist because, like, you know, look at all these black people who uh, who supported. Well, listen, uh, there have always been, you know, listen, man, this is a very great quote by uh, Franz Fanon: "The oppressed will always believe the worst about themselves," and quite frankly. Uh, the, the the black middle class and the vapid uh, black political class and the black petite petite bourgeoisie has a long history of of uh, ruling class uh, treachery in working with the working class with the, with the ruling class and elites to ground the black poor and working class to powder. Uh, organizations like the National Urban League were originally created to basically create a cultural mechanism to ensure that blacks moving up to the northern urban environments were screened out based on their cultural competency using uplift paradigms to make sure that those who are considered dysfunctional, that's substandard housing. So we have whole legacy organizations that black people celebrate to this day that were rooted in pathologizing poor and working class black people that have created whole economic mechanisms for elite people like Vernon Jordan and others to become collaborators with the ruling class in the facilitation of this charade of racial unity to make sure black, black poor and working class people are ground to powder. You know, the Urban League and the, and the NAACP supported eugenics in the early 20th century that disproportionately had black women sterilized under the idea of racial uplift. There's a whole good book called... Um, Oh, I forgot the name. I wrote an article in Black Agenda Report, Black Eugen Black Agenda Report called Black Eugenics, how the black middle class supported sterilization of the black poor in the early 20th century, uh, and about how eugenic schemes. Uh, oh, the author's name is Chantella Sherman. Oh, we did a uh, eugenics episode as well. Yeah, the, the, the show, the book is called In Search of Purity, uh, Eugenics and the uh, the New Negroes of a certain age. Called In Search of Purity. It was a dissertation. I think you can find the book. I actually had I actually had some ridiculous black academic would say, well, the eugenics that they really were arguing for was selective marriage. Most of them didn't really want the women to be sterilized, as if that was any better. Yeah, I should also mention, you know, since you were talking earlier about how about the um, the sort of historical transition from uh, the from eugenic kinds of uh, justifications of poverty to uh, culturalist ones uh, that um, in the 90s you know when when this this kind of uh, you know neoliberal uh, counter-revolution uh, really you know reached its um, you know its, its peak in a lot of ways uh, 
that coincided with the revival of the old uh, genetic strategy, right? I mean, that's that's when uh, Charles Murray and uh, Edward Hertzstein okay. came out with. Uh, we're, we're recycling early 20th century now. We're in the eugenics. Every time you hear these morons talking about, I'm an alpha male, I'm a beta male, I'm a this kind of man. That's all eugenics talk. You, we, it, when you see all, all of this discourse about, like, you know, oh, it's like, you know, per, uh, um, what is it called? Um, uh, Selective uh, the, the the way in which women select mates hypergamy oh it's like you know as if people are lab rats and eugenics actually and one thing that our, our friend uh, Jeff Kennedy shout out to Jeff talk eugenics has been on the rise in academics work in in charter schools and mm -hmm. all of this stuff because this is part as it was in the early twentieth century because this is part of the cyclical centennial nature of how capitalism in its need to reboost itself into a next century recycles anti-immigration early 20th century we had that eugenics we had that uh, uh um we also had uh when it came to um uh, pr uh not necessarily prison but um convict leasing mm -hmm. for blacks that didn't until 1941 we had that as well. So this is a was a recycling of early 20th century policies that were implemented by the ruling class, realizing that there was a need with the coming centennial crisis of capitalism, which, you know, contrary, this is not a conspiracy theory. If you understand that basically there are whole models of the way in which economics is planned in terms of what's on a centennial calendar every hundred years, that we realize that capitalism always finds and needs a mechanism to reorientate itself in American society on a centennial basis to basically kick it into the next century. This is something that's happened, particularly usually when you look at history, there are wars that occur in certain periods of time relative to the, to the early, early aughts of certain centuries, et cetera, et cetera, so on and so forth. So what happens is that these methodologies that were very popular in the early 20th century, again, anti-immigration, eugenics, prison, are recycled with the coming 21st century because capitalism is now still in the crisis and they're trying to find a way to kick it into the 21st century without the ability, without the, the need to go to some kind of global conflagration with a war, which we could have had in 2016, maybe if Hillary was, Hillary was president, who knows? Maybe we could have gone at it with the Russians and the over Syria, possibly. But, but the larger point I'm trying to say is that we are still in the stage, we are early enough in capitalism where the crisis of 21st century capitalism is causing the ruling class to need to try to reorient itself and find a way to secure the exodus of this system and still continue to ground more, not only black and brown people to powder, but an increasing number of white, poor, and working class people to powder. And that's often going to be done through mechanization, automation, technology, robotics, etc. Yeah, and, and the... Um... And the bell curve, um, you know, the most uh, famous chapter of the bell curve, of course, was uh, was the one um, on was the race chapter, uh, which is partially because I think the publisher uh, released that earlier. It was run in I don't know the Atlantic or something, you know, one of those magazines, uh, and you know that that was a you know like a smart marketing strategy for them because because they knew that that was that would get everybody's attention. Uh, but uh, the bulk of the bell curve uh, is not actually about um, you know race. Uh, the bulk of the bell curve is uh, is a sort of general uh, claim 
uh, that uh, there is that like economic disparities in general uh, come out of, uh, of, of genetic differences in, uh, in intelligence. Um, so, you know, that, that genetic strategy is, is explicitly, uh, you know, supposed to, uh, supposed to, to also be about, um, you know, non-black poor people. Uh, and well, why do you think there's so much just, why do you think degenerates like Jordan Peterson and all these other conservatives talk about IQ tests in the 21st century now? As they did in the early 20th century. Mm -hmm. Why do you think IQ test discourse is so popular now? It's the same recycled nonsense. Yeah, and uh, and then and now we have the um, you know the culturalist version of it is uh, in all those ways we talked about earlier with JD Vance and the old Billy Elegy, mm -hmm. with, uh, like the stuff that Kevin Williamson was writing for the National Review. Um, you know where where he was basically like saying that it's. Uh, it's all everybody's fault in Appalachia because they haven't like just picked up and moved to where the jobs are since that's, that's a pair, you know, which is, I've got to say that's, that's a awfully wasn't attractive. It, it, who was the Robert uh, Reich? Wasn't it Robert Reich in the nineties said, y'all, they can learn to code or something ridiculous. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, now, and the, and the thing was is, it Robert Reich uh, that said that? Yeah, well, Robert Reich was actually pretty bad in the nineties. Uh, yeah, he, he, was in, he was in Clinton's cabinet. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so, he, had so, his, he had his he had his come to Jesus moment with the coming of Trump. Yeah, uh, <laughs> but nineties nineties Robert. Yeah, a little before that, I think. But yeah, right. Nineties Robert Reich was pretty bad. You know, he was he was, he was a straight down the line Clintonite, uh, and uh, and that was also essentially uh, the strategy of. I mean, you know, the Obama administration. If you look at what they did, uh, you know, like for uh, for unemployed people in uh, in coal country. Uh, you know, it was essentially just telling them to learn to code. I mean, you know, they sort of put a technology training center here and there. So, like, if you're a, you know, 45-year-old laid-off coal miner, uh, then, you know, theoretically, if, you know, there's a job as a programmer that comes available somewhere that you can get it, uh, you can, you know, have fun competing with 22-year-old college graduates, you know, for it, uh, which which is, which is a, a really, you know, weird insult. Uh, of course, you know, like to everybody's intelligence that they think that the, uh, that, oh no, don't worry, right. You're all going to get highly skilled, you know, jobs now. Uh, but it is very much of, of a piece with the, uh, the sort of, you know, Bill Cosby, Thomas Sowell stuff that you were talking about earlier that, you know, that it's like, really, if you just, you know, pull up your pants, you go to college, you know, whatever, you know, that's the solution. And don't uh, for-profit universities blow up in the first part, the first Obama term as well? Didn't he uh, change some language? Oh, yeah, schools, all of that stuff. All of that is, of course, about neutralizing the fact um, charter schools is a big, the neoliberal Negroes love the charter schools, which I always find funny. Is that why is it that white people who have good public schools in their neighborhoods are never big advocates of charter schools? Why is it always, because it was like, oh, it's our public schooling is horrible. Did you watch Waiting for Superman? That damn uh, uh, charter school porn. Oh, no, I watched that, that back when it came out, and I was like, "This doesn't even feel right." Not to mention that the fact that there's no demonstrative. First of all, charter schools, as we know, ex you know, are designed to make sure that children who are not like who do not have developmental skills, behavioral problems, or certain particular uh, 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 intellectual incapacities because of social behavior are siphoned out. So basically, you have schools, you have privatization in terms of schools that are actually making sure that kids who would have been the best students anyway are basically uh, uh, getting this education. And even under those paradigms, they haven't demonstrably shown that they were great. And the greatest thing that happened to demonstrate the whole the shenanigans behind charter schools is that all these vapid Negroes who love charter schools so much 
all of a sudden started to guffaw and say, oh, my clutch the pearls when Betsy DeVos becomes secretary of education because she's the you know biggest charter school pimp mama in the history of the country. And everyone starts to say, oh, my God, you know, what have we been supporting? Yeah, no, for sure. Uh, and, and I think also uh, they uh, it's. Yeah, I think on the uh, on the charter school point, uh, the um, uh, blanking for a second. I read his book. Uh, yeah, the Cult of Smart uh, by uh, by Freddie DeBoer uh, has has some some really damning stuff on uh, on charter schools, and they're making exactly the point that that Pascal. Yeah, so by the way, there are some uh, black scholars who believe that charter schools also are a fast track in the uh, uh, in the school to prison pipeline. In facilitating mass incarceration as well, by the way, because yeah. of the insane and absurd abusive disciplinarian disciplinary uh, uh, mechanisms that are used in the schools, and how quickly these kids are rendered to that type of uh, of uh, punishment. Yeah, no, and and I think that um, yeah. So in in Cult of Smart, you know, he's uh, he's he's making uh, exactly uh, exactly that uh, that point about how. Uh, the you know what statistics are supposed to show that charter schools perform really well is just a function of the fact that unlike public schools they get to pick their students, uh, and um, and also it's worth mentioning that uh, Waiting for Superman you know that movie uh, I believe repeatedly references Finland about like how oh look at how great the schools are in mm -hmm. Finland how much better those are than American schools so we could have these great charter schools that are just like these Finnish schools uh, and they don't mention that uh, in Finland a um, it's like it's like those are extremely heavily unionized due to schools, but B, they're all public. Uh, private schools are actually illegal in Finland, uh, so it's 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 just complete bullshit on the face of it. And it's also uh, like really like it's one of these things. And I, I I guess this goes back to what Pascal was saying earlier about you know what people believe, what they pretend to believe, what they have ideological interests in believing, so they sort of convince themselves of. Uh, but this this belief that's like one of the most uh, like widely held bipartisan things in American politics that education is a solution to uh, to poverty that that's that's something that that's something that like your you know conservative Facebook uncle who says like oh you know those McDonald's workers should just go back to school if they want better wages he believes that. But it's also something that Barack Obama believes. He said in one of his State of the Union addresses, this is an exact quote. I remember we played it on TNBS, uh, that uh, the best, uh, best anti-poverty program that's ever been devised, Obama said, is a world-class education. Uh, like this, this is such a, a widely held belief, but it's something I guess, that- I guess, it, what about the WPA? What about the work project for me? <laughs> right, right. Isn't that what Reagan, well, of all people, isn't that what Reagan loved? <laughs> Is that what made Reagan's family diehard Democrats was because of the, the WPA? Yeah, it got him out of poverty. Literally lifted Reagan's family out of poverty. What about the 12 oh. million government jobs that were created by by uh, FDR? What about the union jobs? You know, I mean, so, some someone had commented. I mean, in the some chat. people will argue that college education is actually something that actually causes a massive amount of debt. Some people will use the racial wealth gap discourse to show that actually it disproportionately economically disadvantages black people because they have less legacy, legacy capital. They have to borrow more debt and they have less family resources that they actually are burdened with more debt. Not only that, there is a, uh, with, I mean, if there's anything that make, that makes the, uh, 
the argument that college education will assure you that you're going to be successful in America was that after the 2008 crash, crash with the rise of Bernie Sanders, you had Yale PhDs talking about I'm a socialist now because they were you know economically precarious because they couldn't get a they were all adjuncts couldn't get a tenure track job making less than thirty five thousand dollars an hour thirty five thousand dollars a year and some college graduates from at least who were working at Starbucks as baristas. Uh, yeah, this this is cutting a little bit too close to uh, some of my experience. I think I'm getting PTSD <laughs> from this, but uh, uh, <laughs> I think. Uh, but I, I I'd also point out, uh, you know, that like just as a you know, I mean, just just to uh, maybe be a little bit too much of a pedantic nerd about this, but like even without that empirical data, just on the face of it, like just 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 conceptually. This idea that education is the solution to poverty makes no sense because if if the idea is that education is the solution to poverty, which I mean it certainly can be in, in individual cases, but I mean if that if you are that oh okay look we have all these poor people so the solution is that they'll go to school and acquire skills that they could use to get higher paying jobs. I mean that that that, that, that hold again, on the in this in this scenario. Who's doing the old lower paying jobs, right? Not like, 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 Not like if, if there's nobody, you know, uh, picking the lettuce, if there's nobody driving yeah. the food to you know grocery stores, then we all starve to death. Uh, so clearly, even on its own terms, this idea that everybody who has those low paying jobs goes back to skill school, gets technical skills, which by the way, those technical skills wouldn't command much of the job market anyway, if everybody had them, right? Everybody and them. Uh, by definition, they only command anything. They only give you a superior negotiating position because they're relative scarcity. Uh, but even if somehow magically that did happen, that there were magically created all of these spots further up the economic hierarchy, you know, having professional managerial kinds of jobs, uh, then if, uh, then either you'd like you know one way or the other right? somebody has to do the jobs that are currently uh lower paid right you know which is which is why i mean i was every time i think about this i always think about the uh the eugene v debs uh, line you know when was, wilson was uh imprisoning him you know for uh, speaking out against world war one you know he says uh, i don't want to rise through the ranks i want to rise with the ranks you know that at, at a certain like you have to uh you know like you have to have the ranks themselves rising or else you're just rearranging the pieces within an economic hierarchy. And, and you might have different people on top. Uh, like that could totally happen that, you know, that you can like rearrange which specific individuals are in the middle class or in the ruling class. Uh, but, uh, but just, just conceptually, there's there's no way it could happen that you that you'd have education solve like poverty as a social phenomenon like that. First of all, using the using using the supply and demand arguments of the capitalists, if everyone had a college educated job, what would be the value of the of those college degrees in the labor market? Because it would be saturated with college educated people. It would literally collapse the value of the education and collapse its its competitive marketability and enable to actually provide you with a quality of good of of, of uh, living. So the notion that everyone going to college is a solution is kind of ridiculous. I mean, particularly when we live in a country where someone who is a welder or a plumber or who can actually lay pipe makes more money than a lot of people who have MBAs. Yeah. 
It's it, somebody asked in the chat. Uh, they were saying, "Not trying to be a dick, but you know, are we supposed to be talking about uh, yeah. the Chauvin trial?" And I, and I, the way I feel, and I know Pascal feels this way a little bit. This to me is more in line with the verdict, the trial, the actual you know thing that happened with George Floyd, because we can talk about that shit forever, and people are going to talk about that shit forever about what cops shouldn't have. They don't need guns, and they need white gloves. And you need social workers. But they don't want to have this conversation because it's, 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 you know why? Just like talking about black and black crime. What about black on black crime? What about the political <laughs> economy that causes black on black crime? Every time you hear some degenerate talking about black on black crime and he's not talk about solving the political economy that causes that crime, just understand that he just wants to basically shut down poor and working class black people and say they're degenerate, they're defective, and they need to be policed and housed because they're, they are causing my middle class worthless Cornell law degree having ass to depreciate my quality of life. Yeah, I, I, would, I would also say that, uh, I mean, just to, to draw a more direct uh, connection, um, you know, George Floyd uh, was a worker who'd lost his job, who uh, who was uh, who was murdered for uh, for trying to pass a uh, a bad twenty dollar uh, bill. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, I I don't think that you can, which which makes the point that we made several times in this discussion. I mean, I don't think you can have a conversation about uh, police abuses that makes any sense. Uh, without talking about the dynamics of poverty and 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 the way it's managed, because that's you, the underlying issue. You 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 have to have with, this with conversation. By the way, the conversation is tailored to not talk about these problems, because what we're talking about right now is the key as to why George Floyd is dead. It's the key as to why police do what they do. It's the key as to why black men disproportionately fill up prisons. You know why? Because people, particularly large numbers of black people, don't want to realize that capitalism facilitates the disproportionate oppression in this country because you have moron elites in the black community who are pushing black capitalism as a solution to their problem without realizing that that trash has been used for years to make sure that a tiny core elite of Negroes have nice middle class conditions while the majority of poor and working class black people get ground to dust. Yeah. Uh, Jason, so that's, why, that's why you have people who are talking about. I want to. We need more black banks and read the color of money. Talking about how much black banking does absolutely nothing for the condition of black. Well, people. we had an episode with Jared Ball talking about the myth of the black buying power. I mean, I, I kind of wanted to. I, I thought we were going to talk a little bit more, and and I definitely wanted to get uh, your your and Pascal's uh, uh, view on this about kind of this war on on drugs and poverty starting actually from the seventies with uh decriminal decriminalization laws uh that didn't get passed in in black cities with uh, a black political establishment um dc for one of them you know uh dc had an opportunity to pass a legalization of marijuana law in 72 um that would just i think anything over two ounces would have been a citation um, it had been decriminalized in Oregon already by that time. And there was a pushback from uh, the community because marijuana, even though a study had came out that year by Nixon's, not, not the drugs are, I can't remember the guy's exact, exact position, but a study had came out that year that said, look, marijuana is not addictive. It's not going to kill you. And it is not a gateway drug. When that study comes out, a man on the city council, a man named Mark Clark, 
says, why don't we decriminalize marijuana? Because there's too many young black kids that are getting locked up for long periods of time and their lives are being ruined with these felonies. Yeah. Um, by the way, I'll answer Gene's question by saying that I believe in uh, compassion towards people suffering from mental illness, and I'll leave it at that. <laughs> um, but uh, in, in any case, uh, yeah, no, I, I think that those uh, those are uh, those are all connections uh, that uh, you know that that need to uh, that need to be made. You know, because because it's cause both are are true, right? That there's a uh, a larger explanation in terms of uh you know the material base uh and also that there are a series of specific political decisions you know that that are made by uh by particular actors now in the nixon administration uh and uh and and afterwards uh but uh but in any case uh i do want to um uh you know, to do both in a different sense, because because I, I, I agree with Pascal. I think this is the larger conversation that you need yeah. to have to talk about, uh, you know, the murder of George Floyd and uh, and and the um, and and the aftermath of that, you know, leading up oh. to, uh, to 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 the Chauvin conviction. But I also do want to talk about those things themselves, mm -hmm. uh, and uh, and and also have talk about a third thing in in what time we have left. Uh, which is uh, which is the point that I know that that uh, that Pascal wants to make about uh, the way that we process uh, the, these things, kind of as uh, as political spectacle. Uh, but uh, but I think I think of those those things, you know, to uh, to do the the thing that um, that we've done uh, the least of, you know, because because I think we've been talking. At a very big picture level, uh, I do want to bring uh, Forrest on uh, oh, if, hey, he, if he's here. Hey, shout uh, out to the Flying Vets there checking out the show. I saw them in the chat. Shout out Gene Bajlan. So Gene, yeah, uh, yep. We do, love you do you want to do the uh, the doctor one, which kind of ties into the obviously like the the scare the scare or fear mongering about um, drug laws or? you want to do the there's the police kind of um turning on chauvin and that kind of i think for i think that's the spectacle um part of it police like, were cheering him on you said no no, the, no the, the police the police turning on him oh, yeah turning, I'm sorry. like his his chief the, the chief of police um in minneapolis um or chauvin's chief like uh basically came out and said that the the, the, maneuver, the maneuver he did wasn't like a tactic they taught and then they had um, a they had the one of the people that trained him this woman come and um, say basically oh this is not a you know this is not how we train people I don't know what that maneuver is like so I think that's kind of the spectacle part yeah let's let's uh, let's do that and uh, but but I also do want to just uh, just quickly address so uh, there's a uh, um, I, you know I, I think maybe because the uh, the title we uh, we managed to attract a a few reactionaries in the uh, in the chat. And uh, and and one of them says, uh, and this might be bad to the spirit of uh, of trolling, but I think it's uh, but I, I think it's a point worth addressing because it ties into a lot of what we talked about. Uh, this person asks, I would like to put a question to Jason Pascal. Uh, why not privatize security? Let the people themselves hire that security. They feel best safeguards their rights at the uh, at, at the best, at the best price. price. Uh, and I would say. That this uh, this actually cuts to uh, to to one source of my discomfort uh, with um, you know abolition uh, rhetoric uh, because if you have a class society 
and uh, you don't have, um, you know, you don't have security, uh, you know, being provided by public employees. It is for damn sure can be be provided by private companies, and uh, as bad, racist, and oppressive and violent as uh, the cops are, uh, the one thing that's actually worse than that is private cops, because uh, then you've removed the last shred of uh, of pretense of of accountability to some sort of democratic mechanism. I had my dealing with definitely private police forces in uh, in where I lived, and then uh, working with the unhoused, and I have a lot of opinions <laughs> about how that shit ends up working, and it's it's never good. I, and I think that I think that's probably a bit of a joke. I'm hoping that's a bit of a joke. Yeah, no, no, no. I'm sure. I don't think it's a joke at all. I, th- I think they were joking. I think they were joking. I, I don't know they, if this particular person was joking or it was, it was a it was a sort of um, you know they're actually a right winger and just being like sort of a little trollish and throwing it out there. Uh, but I, I, th- I think it is. I think it is actually something that that's important to um, you know to talk about. You know because if because you know the the idea. I mean I. I, I guess one way to put it is this, right? I mean, like, I think there are a lot of like police reform proposals that, uh, that I would, um, uh, yeah, exactly. This, you know, so there are a lot of, uh, police reform proposals that I think would yeah. actually be, be, be good and valuable in terms of, uh, making it, uh, making it easier, like having things that aren't just like toothless community review boards, but actually have the power to fire cops, yes, uh, having, having, um, you know, like, uh, severely demilitarizing police by, you know, taking away the ability to send like SWAT teams to various things you can send them to right now, banning the sales surplus everywhere. You can send SWAT teams wherever you want to send them right now. But again, this goes you know, back but, to the whole but, like policing of poverty, and it goes back to the whole like, okay, uh, do we yeah, think? So, so, so that, that's what I was just going to say, though, right? Because I, I think that all of these things would help, and I support them, right? But also, um. I think that you are going to have like some sort of like, like the idea that the, uh, that not having, you know, um, that not having police as, uh, as public employees, especially if the backdrop of class society is going to mean that things like this, you know, just don't happen. I'm, I'm, I'm very skeptical about, it. I mean, if you look at the history of uh, private security and, you know, to the extent that private security now isn't as bad as, it used, you know, like sure a private security guard whose function is just to call the cops, right. You know, might not be as bad, but they have a, but, uh, but think about like uh, the history of, um, of like militaristic privatized strike breaking, like in the 19th century, yeah. early 20th century, the Pinkertons would like massacre people. Uh, How did this work out with George Zimmerman? Right. Exactly. Yeah. That was the, uh, that's, um, like, and I think that that's the kind of thing that, you know, that you're going to have, uh, you know, it's very easy to say, oh, we'll have sort of spout these ultra left slogans. Well, we'll have like, you know, non-professionalized, popular, democratic, this, that. It's like, okay, but like, does do the, does the gated community also get one? Yeah. 
The main problem with privatizing police is that since you're putting the burden of paying for security on the capacity of the citizenry, then it automatically guarantees that people who are poor and working class are going to have substandard policing where they either have no police and are yep. more rendered to, to mass to, to, to the carceral state and mass incarceration, or are going to have subpar police that are going to be probably more abusive or lack yep. or lacking in their care of the people in those communities. And that's, I was, yeah, I'm, I'm not going to say anything because I was going to say pretty much the same thing. And you said it more eloquently than I. Or you're, or you get stuck with uh, like a feudal situation where in order to get police to lower income communities of any kind, like you have to pay basically like a fealty to a, you know, to a, to some kind yeah. of, uh, you know, boss above you. And the more, and the more you, the more you really privatize things like in the libertarian sense where like government completely abdicates any responsibility towards it the more you really get to that feudal state, I think. In, no, in exactly. And, and again, the point is that a private, like private security is only even pretends to be accountable to the people who are signing their paychecks. There's no, there's re, I mean, the fiduciary duty of a private security guard to the citizenry is only, is only contact, contractual. It's not constitutional. And that's why private security is going to be defective because there is no actual requirement that they fight, they respect your constitutional rights because they will not have the political fiduciary relationship that a government state entity has with you. I don't, th at this person, I think you're just being a troll at this point, dude. You're saying things like, of course, would you ever hire a police force that would wage a drug war against you? Of course not. But now you're getting to the point of who can afford the better police yeah. force. You're if I have more money, you're yeah, I'm going to have the baddest them. police force just With, to take. Uh, yeah, it's silly yeah, talk. The, the question isn't whether you'd hire somebody, to, you know, somebody to do this to you. If you're hiring them, they're not doing anything to you. Uh, the question uh, is uh, is whether the uh, the rich guy who uh, you know who owns the building that you live in or who owns the company that runs everything in town, whether he, you know, what the security that he would hire would do to you. Have, the, have any of these people that asked that dumbass question ever been in? Uh, country where law enforcement is pretty much non-existent and it's a series of private security that shit's fucking frightening ever been around fucking a narco town where they say don't look that way man because that's you know yeah, I mean, I mean, look, look think, think about yeah, think about Brazil. You know the uh, uh, yeah, that's what I'm talking know. about. Brazil, certain parts of Mexico. Yeah, I mean, Mariela Franco uh, wasn't oh. uh, you know wasn't killed uh, by the police. She yeah. was uh, she was killed by uh, you know by a paramilitary gang uh, with yeah. that certainly has links to uh, you know Bolsonaro's movement. Uh, you know, but uh, but also like directly controls a bunch of you know of of, of territory in like classic gang fashion, and you know and and that I think that's uh, like yeah that that's that's a uh, I, I always think of. Um, I always think of one of my favorite short, um, you know, I, I don't, uh, you know, I don't agree with uh, Sam Cedar about everything. He's a liberal, but, uh, but he, um, but he, he sometimes like he, he'll do these little debates with uh, libertarian callers that are a lot of fun to watch sometimes. And he, uh, one of them, um, one of my all time favorites was a guy who claimed to be a, uh, he said he was an anarcho capitalist and they were, uh, they were talking uh, and they started like going through like what this this anarcho capitalist world would be like, and I don't even remember what the question. And of course, you had um, like 
Michael sort of sitting there one quarter making fun of him and, you know, making mm-hmm. fun of the guy and Sam's like, no, 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 come on, come on, come on. You know, and, and like Jamie Peck is like trying to like, you know, argue with him about the definition of anarchist and Sam's like, no, no, no. Oh, I know, exactly. right? I know and, exactly. And then, and then he says, and then he's like going through various problems that could arise in this world. He's like, how would you, uh, how would you solve these? And the anarcho-capitalist college, <laughs> of, you know, assassinations and, uh, uh, and, and Sam says, oh, you know, cool world. Uh, which is, you know, is always what I think about, you know, uh, it's like, yeah, no, let's definitely, uh, let's definitely make the United States more like Brazil. And, that, and that's, yeah, that's more world. towards where we're going to. I don't know if you, if you follow or read uh, Douglas Rushkoff, he wrote the book, uh, throwing rocks at the Google bus. Um, he had a, an interesting, uh, write up in medium last year, I think it was where he was brought in to talk to some tech gajillionaires and he's given his usual talk about his issues with tech and all the shit. Um, and at the end, he's, he's like, I don't think these guys are paying attention. So they're like, well, that's all fine and great. We just want to know, what do we do with our guards when money has no value? We want you to help us out for that. <laughs> and he was kind of blown away by it because he's like, these guys already know where we're headed. And these are the people that already live in places like New Zealand. And, you know, they, they have the private islands in Hawaii where you might catch that private law enforcement put a hot one in your ass if you cross the, the property line when you don't know where it is. And they're saying when money no longer has a value and we just can't pay for our security, what is our next plan? Yeah. Yep. Digital, digital currency, you know. <laughs> Yeah, I saw a uh, bio, I thought, bio, I saw the bio first biocurrency. Yeah. Yeah. Um yeah, that's 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 not uh that's not <laughs> that's, fun a, to, uh, that's a but that's a crazy thought to have that that's that's where like these people trying to have this this silly little debate. It's like you, this is the fantasy. You you might as well be like, what if I traded my Will Clark for your you know that's where you are. The real people with the real money are asking this question later. Hey, when I can no longer do this, how am I still going to be on top of the hill? You know, that show Black Mirror, uh, one of my one of my favorite episodes is the mechanical dog episode, because if you watch it, it's it's in a world where that has already happened. If you remember, the mechanical dog is chasing her and she breaks into a gigantic house. Remember uh. where, where the people in I think it took their own life. Because that was the reality of this uh, uh, post-apocalyptic world. I and I I feel like a lot of times, um, you know, like ANCAPs and, and libertarians think about it as if like almost like um, you know the strong the strong will survive. Like you know what I mean? Like the natural hierarchies will come up. But you're not if if everything falls apart and like it's all private security, all private military. Like you're not starting from ground zero. It's whoever has the resources right now continues to have the resources like if money has no value like you're you're at a point where like whoever has the guns whoever has the military equipment right now still has the military equipment you know Mm -hmm. what i mean like and like i don't know so when it comes to like privatizing um like when it comes to like thinking about like a like a 100 percent private police force like you'd be going with people that are already kind of running around with guns like vigilantes now and that's (laughs) Like, like that's, I mean, that's a terrifying thought. Like you're, you're thinking about like far right militias. You're thinking about like, you know what I mean? Like, like 
all of these like all of these groups that kind of have been that, that have deluded themselves into training for this like you're you're trusting your security yeah. to people who there's no interest in that like yeah i i, I, sh I should say by the way parenthetically because uh, it came up in the chat um you know mentioning that about about sam cedar that the point is not to uh, to slam the guy the uh, the uh he's like yeah fucking liam you know the uh, the point the, the point the point is is that's not at all the point right the point is just that i think that i think that as he would be the first one to say right his politics are not my politics right that's that's uh, that's uh you know my, my, my you know my position on uh um I think my my end of the day position on uh, police abolition is that uh, you know the the ones that we have now uh, should be abolished as part of a process of uh, of of getting rid of the, uh, the the existing system and and replaced with uh, and replacing it with a new one. At which point we can uh, we can have a uh, entirely new and different you know police force that can. Uh, you know, that could, uh, that's been the stop right wing counter revolutionaries, you know, but uh, th that's that's kind of how, you know, we we had a movie night uh, recently on This is Revolution and Pascal recommended that we watch The Spook Who Sat by the Door. I had never seen it. Oh, yeah. I love that movie. And, and it was because it's being remade and Lee Daniels apparently is remaking oh, yeah. it. So we had to watch it before it gets ruined. And it, it it's an to me is an amazing movie. And we also had Angela Walker, who's actually now a part of the show on Saturdays who ran for the Green Party uh, VP candidate. And at one point, she ran for sheriff. And we're starting to see people like Chase Boudin, you know, more far-left socialist people getting in offices like district attorney. But what would law enforcement look like if, and I asked this question to Pascal, I'll ask it to Forrest and Ben, if there actually were socialist uh, of leftist police chiefs, you know, I don't, I don't think that changes the actual nature of policing and the functionality of policing in this current economy. The question becomes: Can we have a socialist society mm -hmm. or a society that has an economic paradigm that is not based on cap cannibalizing people who are not in the one percent or or uh, relatively close to it, being able to police or govern our society? Because even if you have a bunch of socialists on the, I mean, they might be socialists on the police. They might have DSA members or cops now. It doesn't change the particular functionality of police in a society of increasing precarity when you still have to basically relegate poor and working class people, disproportionately black, to the reserve army. It change, I'll, I'll, I'll push back. I'll say it changes in this capacity. If I'm a cop, I'm riding around looking for trouble. That's my job. If there's people that are, are just fundamentally against riding around looking for trouble, you're going to have less of these kind of quality of life stops. I believe I mean, this. I, I think the ideological infrastructure of the actual functionality of police supersedes the personal political proclivities of individuals or police. They're probably good Christian soldiers who are cops who still kill people. Yeah, I, I have an interesting. I mean, I have an interesting situation going on here in Ulster County. Um, we had so we had this sheriff for a really long time. We elect our so our sheriffs are elected. Um, so we had the sheriff for a really long time that had this really fucking awful uh, drug enforcement program called Urgent, to the point where Trump invited him to the White House to like hang out for a day because he was like praising his his. Uh, drug enforcement things, which, so they started at the bottom row and they just like pretty much just raid houses. 
and yeah. raid houses and raid houses until they get up. But because it's like you know, I mean, you've you've hung out in like Kingston before, Jason. Like, yeah. it's it's like a it's like a very varied whatever. It's like a lot of the people that they end up like breaking into their houses and stuff are just like high school students that they're gonna try to scare the shit out of. Like that's the target they like, or like college students they're gonna try to scare the shit out of. Like like younger kids that they think, oh, maybe I can find my way up the chain. So we so we had this program going on. Numbers wise, like the neoliberal like numbers data game, highly successful, terribly cruel. So um, there was this there was this uh, this guy that was in the state troopers that um, that lives in this area that lived in Kingston that ran for sheriff, um, who's progressive, who ran on a platform of kind of instead of doing um, instead of sending people to jail for opioids, which are a huge problem in this county, um, he was going to start. Uh, sending people to rehab, like rehabs or like other, like more therapeutic, um, mm -hmm. whatever. And I mean, it's been somewhat successful, but like the, the nature of policing here hasn't changed, but he was like, a, you know, I mean, progressive, pro I guess progressive police is, is kind of. We where where I grew up in Richmond, California, they actually had a very progressive uh, police chief at one point in time that had really tried to change the model of what was going on and people really really loved the guy until he or yeah until he left um and you know the the rates of um, murders went down the crime rates went down uh, drastically so i would i would say there's a difference between daryl gates like i get what you're saying the system of policing but when daryl gates when Joe Arpaio, when these people say, I'm dropping the hammer, we're arresting everybody. And you get people like that out and you get people with a real progressive agenda that says, you know what? We're going to be done with cash bail. We're not going to prosecute. We're not even going to go after quality of life crimes anymore. That really does change so, the so George Floyds. It doesn't, yeah. it doesn't make it go away totally, right? But I'm not trying to police your poverty. We talk about all the time on the show. If I get pulled over, I don't have any warrants for putting a bullet in anybody. I might have a failure to appear on a traffic ticket, and now I got a warrant. But in that cop's eyes, he can fuck with me. That's wino time shit. Why do you think George Floyd got fucked with? That's wino time shit. They love fucking with guys with wino time. The prisons are filled with motherfuckers that don't kill people. They arrest those people with kid fucking gloves because they're frightened. They know who to fuck with and who not to fuck with. Yeah, it's like the uh, I, the I remember thinking back in uh, 2003 that uh, one that I was absolutely certain that um, uh, the Bush administration didn't believe that Iraq had weapons of mass destruction because uh, if they uh, if they did they wouldn't have invaded. <laughs> um, so uh, yeah, no, I I think that. Uh, I, I mean, I think that maybe both things can be somewhat true here, that there is like, like, it does matter who's running some of these things, that there it does matter, um, you know, maybe who's the police chief, you know, that like, uh, who's the sheriff, you know, whether whether you have Derek Gates or Joe Arpaio uh, at the top of these things, certainly who's the uh, the DA, uh, that, there's, that, that, uh, that that matters too. That there are there are certainly there's there's certainly a harm reduction uh, calculus to that, and and there are certainly uh, ways that um, that you can you know even on a local level you know you can implement things that that really will reduce the um, the damage that these institutions do. But at the same time, I mean, I think on the larger question, Pascal's just obviously right that there's that like 
the 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 basic um, like the prob the basic problem is not that the wrong people are in charge of these institutions. Uh, the basic problem is the uh, the role that they play within our economic system, you know, and 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 so that's mm -hmm. that's why, like this the solution, like again, I think that um, in my view, like saying abolish the police is a incredibly politically unhelpful because you know because what most people will hear is that you don't want there to be some sort of publicly owned entity that is engaged in enforcing any laws which is obviously insane uh you know and also i think a lot of people who say that like when you really press them on that they're pretty vague about what they mean but at the same time yeah i mean you should abolish you know the kind that we have right now because you should abolish the kind of economic system that we have right now and 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 as part of it all of the institutions that that enforce it and uh, and 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 you should replace it with something new. I mean that new that new system will still have uh, people who you know like you could call it something other than the police, but you know we'll still have some sort of professional apparatus to uh, to enforce some laws. You know because because uh, I don't believe for a second that you know uh, that rape and domestic violence and interpersonal conflict will you know, um, will wither away as soon as we, you know, which we change the, uh, the economic system. Uh, but, uh, but the, but the police that exist right now, certainly, I mean, they serve the interests of capital because we live under capitalism like that, that, that just, I mean, that, that, that's the way it's going to be. And I think that system over time, unfortunately, uh, is going to produce more Daryl Gates's, uh, that, that it is, uh, this guy, this guy that you're talking about, uh, because that's what serves uh, the interests of the people at the uh, at the top of the top of society. It's a it's a cheaper way of managing poverty than uh, than than building a real welfare state is. And there's blowback to Daryl Gates. I mean, if we look at Daryl Gates, his trajectory, and kind of just you know, Mike Davis, the great Mike Davis, writes about Los Angeles and California uh, better than anyone I know. But when you think about how Daryl Gates came up with a series of police chiefs that were as bad as him, if not worse. Yeah. And by the time he gets into power, it's kind of a horrible time for the city, right? You have a, you have a, a city that's becoming more and more deindustrialized. You also have a city that's being hit with a humongous flow of pure cocaine, <laughs> right? So you have now you have a horrible gang problem. And he was the wrong man. And not to say that if he wouldn't have been there, these things wouldn't have happened. But when you look at. And this is way before 94 crime bill, we're talking like 86. We're talking 82. They had to outlaw the chokehold in 82 because they were killing too many black people. And when that. <laughs> When it when that question was proposed posed to Daryl Gates, he said, "Well, you know, their arteries just work different. <laughs> the carotid chokehold that they're trying with the George Floyd crime bill that they're trying to say we don't need anymore. The carotid chokehold wasn't used to beat the shit out of Rodney King and all the other dudes that got their ass whooped that didn't have it on camera." I mean, you know, people, the same people pushing the crime bill also were pushing stuff in the 80s. That's kind of where the momentum. Um, Joe guess, Biden. Yeah. Joe Biden. Yeah. Oh, exactly. 
And by the way, by the way working just, with uh, Strom Thurmond for a bunch of those bills, oh. too, pretty sure. Yeah, um, I just posted a 2016 study from you, charter schools propping up the school-to-prison pipeline. These are the schools that black elites love so much that Cory Booker, Adrian Fenty, Arthur Davis, and Obama, the neoliberal black, the neo black, neoliberal black uh, paradigm of the black political class that started uh, in the early aughts. Those trial balloon, uh, neoliberal, heavily corporate funded uh, politicians were all major charter school pimps. Major charter school pimps. Talking about how black students are disproportionately up to 70 times, 70 percent, 70 times more likely to be uh, suspended and put through into what's called the school of prison pipeline in charter schools. So, again, this is what is being pushed by black elites in the black middle class as the solution to black education. I mean, yeah. I'm... All right. Uh, Forrest, let's uh, let's let's watch that clip. Yeah, hold on. Once there was no longer any resistance. And clearly, when Mr. Floyd was no longer responsive and even motionless to continue to apply that level of force to a person proned out, handcuffed behind their back, um, that that in no way, shape, or form is anything that um, uh, is by policy, is not part of our training, and it is certainly not part of our ethics or our values. Uh, I'd like to show you uh, what's been received as Exhibit 17. to ask you officer as you look at exhibit 17 is this a trained technique that's uh by the minneapolis police department when you were uh, overseeing the training unit it is not and why not uh, well use of force according to policy has to be you know consistent with mpd training and what we train are neck restraints the conscious and unconscious neck restraint so for policy uh a neck restraint is compressing one or both sides of the neck using an arm or leg. But what we train is using uh, one arm or two arm to do a, a neck restraint. And how does this differ? I don't know what kind of improvised position that is. So that's not what we train. The, the, uh, it's. It, I was watching this, uh, there's an interesting, there's a really good documentary called uh, "Let It Let It All Burn," and it talks about the the L.A. riots, um, but it gives you a ten year span. It starts from '82, and then of course ends in the in the riots, and it, and it has actual police officers in it that were involved in the riots, and they had been police officers for some time, and they definitely ran the spectrum. Some guys really fucking hated Daryl Gates and and walked away from the force, and other people were kind of true blue through and through. And when they talk about the training and chokehold and how when they had to ban the chokehold because they were killing people one of the reasons why they were putting the chokehold on people is because they felt that these people were doing pcp and when we go back to the the james mincy jr is the gentleman's name you can look up his case it's it's a, actually a, a very interesting case a very sad story of a young man died unfortunately too soon he had a cracked windshield again policing poverty he had a cracked windshield he got pulled over by a cop he got given a ticket for the windshield as he drives off home 
another set of police officers try to pull him over for the same cracked windshield. He panics, gets, tries to get home as fast as possible. The cops go, he's on PCP. Put him in that carotid, and he dies. And then again, they have to get rid of it. Then they get the, they, they have a name for it, but those metal billy clubs, those batons. And they're taught to break bones because you're constantly in fear of this drugged out guy. And when you hear these same cops talk about Rodney King, they're like, well, he was on PCP, which he was not. Yeah. So, well, well if, and of course, the, the idea is that, you know, PCP like just turns you into like one of the X-Men or something, which uh, <laughs> is not actually the case. But lots of people believe it. I mean, that's kind of, that's still pushed as like a, you know, like, like Angel Dust somehow gives you like the strength of a million men. And like, I don't know, I like, Anytime I've ever heard somebody, like I've heard plenty of people make jokes, like and 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 you know use that as a as a punchline to it. Like, is that what was in U.S. Agents uh, Super Soldier Serum Angel Dust? Is that why? Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, one of the uh, one of the reasons you know showed that is that it, it is interesting uh, that uh, that I think uh, you know I don't want to be careful about how I put this, you know, because it's it's not like I mean clearly. Um, I mean, Derek, you know, Derek Chauvin, you know, is, is, uh, you know, as guilty as, uh, as anybody possibly could be. I mean, he, uh, uh, he, you know, I mean, he, like he, uh, choked somebody to death on camera mm -hmm. while they were like clearly powerless and begging for their life and, you know, talking about their mom and stuff like that. So, uh, you know, the, the guy was, was, was clearly guilty. So I, I, I don't want to make it this sound like some sort of like bullshit right-wing talking point about like the, Oh, you know, they were just pacifying the mob or whatever, you know, not mm -hmm. the case, but uh, it is also interesting to uh, see the cops throw him under the bus there. Yeah. Uh, yeah that's what, that's why I, um, that's why I clipped that for, for this, uh, that exact point. Like I like, cause, cause, cause I think, I think that is yeah. like, I think that is a strategy, right? Like normally they, they close ranks, you know, behind their own when stuff like this happens. And I think that they've got into uh, <coughs> the point where they think, okay, you know, maybe for high uh, profile cases, they'll throw people under the bus. I mean, again, they threw them under the bus because the state realizes the potential for urban rebellions and just destruction of cap property and capital is so great that they would rather sacrifice him to have cities all over the country burn. Just like it was cities all over the country's burning that made sure this cop was put in prison, not, uh, you know, Keith Ellison. Not that I'm saying that that's a good thing, but I'm just saying sometimes. Yeah. I, mean, I mean, Chauvin clearly didn't get the message that there was a anything like that going on because he seems fucking shocked that that could happen to him, which kind of says a lot about the police mindset, I guess, going into something like this, even with uh, everybody kind of. Yeah, that, that he, that, like he yeah. knew that like he was he knew that people were filming him uh, while he killed somebody and he was shocked that uh, that they that he is uh, going to uh, be criminally punished for him. That, that certainly tells you everything, but also, yeah, I, th I think what Pascal is, um, you know, is saying uh, is, uh, you know, is, is right. And I think it goes back to the discussion that we were having about the, the structural role of policing under capitalism and what, and what can and can't be solved with different uh, personnel uh, because, you know, they, the strategy here 
is to say, look, uh, okay, so this guy's a bad apple, but you know, mm-hmm. but we, uh, uh, but you know, but the the police are 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 fine, right? Like, so if if you if you lock him up, you know, problem solved. Yeah, well, it's it's he's a bad apple, but look, like his chief is sitting on the stand, or you know what I mean, like sitting up there telling, like admitting that what he did was wrong. Like that's not a that's not a blue wall of silence. Like, look, the the person that trained him sitting there, you know, saying that he did something wrong. Like that's not a blue wall of silence. Like. So like I nobody wants that level of bad press, man. Again, go back and watch the footage of Daryl Gates turn on those cops quickly. We never train people to do that. Police police are agents of the state. All right. The state realizes that rebellions and riots in the wake of a George uh, Chauvet uh, acquittal would have been disastrous, particularly in the face of a Biden administration that's supposed to be playing huggy-kissy-kissy with Black Lives Matter and, you know, concerned with all the uh, issues and affairs of Black people today because, you know, Joe Biden promised that, like, you had my back and I'll have yours. So, you know. But this that would be the, what, third or fourth one? Didn't they blow up? Sorry. Pascal, can you say that one more time? (laughs) Joe Biden in his 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 presidential... Acceptance speech. He said, "The black community had my back, and I'll have theirs." Okay, sorry, I just didn't hear that. Uh, Jason, what are you saying? I, not much now. <laughs> Fucking uh, Pascal's Joe Biden. Uh, <laughs> but Minnesota, I, I thought that didn't they blow up over Philando Castile? Didn't they get a little violent over Philando Castile? And that happened a few years ago. You got George Floyd. It's it. They can't afford to have it happen. The kid that that got killed uh, thirty miles away, as we're watching the George Floyd uh, Boy, trial. Has anyone inquired why Nancy Pelosi made a statement about a state oh, criminal case in Minnesota? Has anyone inquired why uh, um, Maxine Waters went out and publicly said this, that y'all better be aggressive and started, co- you know, basically stating that people don't stand for it. And this, listen. Part of the left flank of capital of the ruling class, the Democratic Party, is playing is playing on the, the the Great Awakening's racial grievance discourse popularity to validate the functionality of the Democratic Party as the left flank of capital and more able to govern in the rise of reactionary nationalism coming with Trump, because they realized in the last fifty years. The, you know the count the fifty year counter revolution that the Democratic Party can arguably be laid to blame for worse policy policies for poor and working class black people than Republicans, and they are basically scared that if they don't give some form of concessions, whether it's fat back and biscuits to the black political class or acting like they care about the black people in prison that they help facilitate put there, or the cops killing black people who they actually armed with their policies when they gave them militarized weaponry through democratic presidents and, and administrations that they, they they're going to play this huggy kissy with the negro in order to make it seem like they actually give a damn did you see karen bass behind her <laughs> karen bass looked like she wanted to snatch her fucking heart out as she was saying that shit and then the raiders didn't get any better the raiders uh, actually made their whole twitter say i can't breathe yeah of course, uh, you know Nancy Pelosi and her. Um... Oh yeah, here we go. Yep. Oh, look, okay. Watch Karen Bass behind her. Watch this. Just look the eyes through the. Thank you, George Floyd. 
for sacrificing your life for justice, mm -hmm. for being there to call out to your mom. How, how heartbreaking was that? Call out for your mom. I can't breathe. But because of you and because of thousands, millions of people around the world who came out for justice, your name will always be synonymous with justice. Yeah, that sure was nice of, uh, of, of, of George Floyd to... George Floyd died to prove that a, that a system that incarcerates and renders black men more to prison and actually the death penalty is just because he was killed by a cop. Yeah. So in other words, Nancy well, Pelosi is saying that George Floyd being murdered has validated a system that disproportionately crushes people like George Floyd to powder. Yeah, well, he was uh, in uh, in arranging it so so that that cop could uh, uh, could could step on his neck until he died, uh, which that was, was very generous moment, man. Yeah, yeah, very generous of him, right? That he he, he did, you know, that he decided to do that. Uh, that uh, you know, but that's okay though, because he was doing that so that justice could be served by the cop who's who, who, who killed him. Going to prison, assuming, by the way, that Maxie Waters didn't fuck up the conviction, uh, you know, oh, and, uh, and 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 get it, you know, voided on appeal. But um, but you notice how how uh, Pelosi is tacitly admitting that the riots in the street is what got the acquittal. The millions of people, oh yeah, a lot of those people were burning stuff down. Yeah, yeah, but. Um, you know. Oh, go, yeah. go ahead. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Oh, I was just going to say, even from a you know, even from a neoliberal like centrist perspective, uh, it uh, it might be time to uh, to get a less senile speaker. But uh, we'll <laughs> turn this. And... You, you know, you know, it's really sad. I was talking to a, a friend on on Facebook who works as as a counselor. She actually is a mental health counselor. And she had said something uh, that a lot of people in the industry say, which is, you know, because George Floyd's a common character that we deal with. And she was like, you know, if he doesn't get killed, no one talks about that dude or, or a third of the problems that go on in that community. And I'm not saying he, he sacrificed his life. I definitely know he wasn't going to the liquor store to do that shit. But there is something to be said about the fact that there's so many people that don't die at the knee of law enforcement. Like you don't have to die at the knee of law enforcement for us to really examine the policing of poverty. And I'm just going to keep saying it because I believe it's a, it's a legitimate beef that people should be having instead of trying to find nicer ways to police poverty, gunless ways to do it. We need to just stop policing poverty how about we stop yeah. poverty yeah well that's that that's the thing like I, I mean i sure i mean if you come up with ways that you could uh you know make the uh the policing of it less less brutal then you know i'm for that but like basically the only the only solution you know like the uh the the only uh actually effective solution to it is to uh is to do something about uh, about poverty itself. Otherwise, you know, you might have softer and rougher versions of it. But this is basically uh, what you're um, what you're going to see. And and before we uh, before we finish up, I, I just want to uh, to touch 
on uh, on some of the points that Pascal has uh, has made before about um, how it is that we uh, that we process uh, these uh, these things and uh, and and talk about them and sort of focus on these spectacular uh, you know incidents and uh, and and I know you know like a phrase that you've used in talking about this before is the politics of containment. Yeah, the politics of containment, which when we had Adolf Reed on the show, I actually asked him if he believed black politics was a politics of containment. And he said, yeah, I think it is. But I think the, con the containment is basically done in that what that basically means is that the political aspirations and thoughts and opinions of black people are corralled into an illusory notion of one unified body that can be controlled by a tier of elites who, who are black but act at the behest of the ruling class and use their racial uh, 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 identity and their, their racial kind of authenticity to negotiate for their personal benefit while basically playing on the, you know, the hot button emotional issues and policy issues that they feign concern of over the black community so that, you know, I didn't watch the George Floyd trial because I refused to have myself emotionally triggered by a media spectacle that it was going to be used to have me corral my emotions to say, look, all of the black people feel this and all of the black people want that because it, forced, it forces me to surrender the response to this phenomenon to a bunch of parasitic elites who are only doing the bidding of the ruling class to basically socially control poor and working class black people particularly and maintain their class position while denying the fact that some black people might say that, hey, what exactly is the reason why there was no investigation of Chauvin's prior interactions with people and the number of complaints that got his ticket pulled as, as a cop before, instead of just talking about what he did to George Floyd? How come this guy was even on the force, or allowed to be on the force in the first place? He had, first place, he had quite a few numbers of complaints or asking other questions about the role of political elites and how this is being negotiated, or a variety of questions. But the point is, is that surrendering to this spectacle facilitates the way in which black politics and race politics becomes a kabuki theater between black liberals or conservatives who can sit around talking about, well, you see, the problem is the culture. The problem is the people. The problem is this, without actually talking about the political economy and how it renders working class and poor black people who are disproportionately affected by this kind of police action and poverty and crime in their communities while middle-class Negroes cash checks and buy houses in California and do commercials for Cadillac. Screaming Leave black me black. out of this. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, Adolf Reed goes into, I, I like how he puts it in class notes where he's talking about, you know, like almost as like a language translator, like like black leaders as like a, like almost Racial like. Racial ventriloquist. Like, yeah, like, like uh, you know, like the fear that even, even white leftists have that they don't understand how to speak to uh, black people or anybody different than them. You know what I mean? So they need, like, it's almost like the language is ciphered through these these leaders who want to keep their own status as an elite, like just by definition. Um, so yeah, it's, what, what, what's that essay? The uh, what are the drums saying, Cornell? That's the, the what, what are the drums saying, Booker. Yeah, Booker. The, curse, the curse of community. There's a whole. There's a whole. Some people. It's called brokerage politics. I call it racial ventriloquism. Some people call it cartel. You know, cartel politics or, or uh, 
there's another word for it as well. But it's basically a way in which you have race management. Another one, one of the reasons why I use the word the politics of containment is because it allows black people collectively to be managed, race mm-hmm. management mm-hmm. at the behest of black elites for the ruling class. Mm-hmm. This, is a, this is a paradigm that goes back over 100 years in the black community. Undemocratically chosen spokesmanship. And lots, lots of black people think, oh, this is wonderful. It's, a, it's part of the main reason why black politics facilitates things. Oh, see, Deep State got him. <laughs> and you know it sucks. He just now got a new, a new black, Wi-Fi. Rounding, black. Hey, Deep State oh, got rounding. you. Yeah. Deep State all got your Wi-Fi. Really, all politics are really management at this point. Like, I mean, yeah. we talk about that constantly with like the PMC, but I mean... <laughs> Well, well, I want to, before we go, I definitely want to thank uh, Ben and Forrest for having us on uh, and being able to have this conversation to this level. Um, when, we, when we agreed to come on and do it, we weren't going to sit here and break down the trial and break down knees to the neck and nine minutes and all that other stuff. We're definitely going to get into a, a, a much larger discussion about the the causes of, uh, of these problems. So thank you for uh, letting us come on and uh and talk yeah, I mean, I mean, I also don't want, um, you know, I mean, I, I think that, uh, you know, that you can be topical to a point, you know, but I, but I also, uh, I also think that there are, you know, there's a level of detail that, you know, you, you can, you can get a hundred places, uh, tonight or yesterday, uh, <laughs> that, uh, but, um, what you, I think maybe don't get enough places is uh is what you and pascal uh were uh were talking about uh tonight you know which which should be the um you know which 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 should be the uh the larger discussion you know because uh even if like so much of um of the way that we process this stuff i think you know it goes back to uh you know mark fisher and you know capitalist realism you know just the the way that things are is is you know like you don't have to love it but you know you accept it as the only way Mm -hmm. that things could basically Mm -hmm. possibly uh be and everything happens uh within uh you know within that prism so uh so you you end up having these discussions about um you know, whether you can replace, you know, cops with social workers or, you know, whether you can, uh, uh, or, or whether you have, uh, you know, you have, uh, unarmed, uh, uh, cops or you get rid of, uh, you know, you, you get rid of cops and you have, uh, and I don't know, whatever, you know, you have your, you know, community militia or whatever, uh, that uh, I'm not averse to having those discussions, but I also mm-hmm. think that even when people uh, who are having them often, oftentimes, even when the people who are having discussions all think of themselves as radical leftists, there is this like just bone deep capitalist realism informing, informing the whole thing, which is that you're, you're not really talking about why the, uh, the hammer is coming down. You're, mm-hmm. you're really talking about like, whether we could replace part of the hammer, you know, whether we can, you know, whether we can, uh, can have a different kind of hammer or what, you know, or, or, or whether you can like rubber coat it or something. And, uh, and you, you know, you're not really talking about how you could have a situation, uh, you know, where it's, uh, it's, it's not, it's not coming down at all and what you need to do to do that. Well, the people throwing down the hammer are very much thinking about how to throw the hammer down most effectively. You know what I mean? Like, 
Uh, so that's kind of on, on the same, like on the same level, like they're very, they're very clearly thinking about the hammer. Like Biden has spent his life thinking about how to build the most damaging and effective hammer that he possibly and he spent a lot of time throwing that motherfucker down too. Yeah. You know, it's, it's when you look at how people called for tougher restrictions, called for more police, especially in the nineties, you know, we don't get here in a vacuum and I, we've done a show, me, Tere, uh, Pascal, and Cedric, where we kind of break down these movies from the 90s, like Boys in the Hood, which to me is a is a commercial for the 94 crime bill. It doesn't really address the problems of what caused all this shit. It just exists in this vacuum of bad acting Negroes that need to pull their pants up and go to college. Super predators. The, yeah. We know we went to the theaters to see super predators in mass. Well, Ben, I wanted to say that I want you know, in terms of uh, inviting us here, you know, uh, I know you weren't trying to play the black left vent, the left ventriloquist game. Is like, who are the only two black guys we can see to talk about the show vet trial? Let's get Jason because I know I want to make it clear because there are people who will accuse us to say, well, well, aren't you guys playing the racial ventriloquist role on the black left for being invited? I said, actually, my job here is to collapse that whole paradigm and to demonstrate why it's ridiculous and, and, uh, and nonsensical and to illustrate how the utility of that is utilized by traditional corporate media, media to stop the ability of people who are black and white like ourselves having actual conversations about how political economy of capitalism facilitates the destruction of all poor and working class people who are victimized by a system that basically is designed to make them redundant in this age of precarity. And that's why I think, if I don't mean to speak for Jason, I think that that's why we're here. Oh, you can speak for me anytime, pretty boy. <laughs> well, uh, I mean, the reason that you're that you're here is that I, I, I've both I've heard both of you say things about this that I thought were insightful, um, and uh, and also uh, also I wanted to hear Pascal's Joe Biden impression. Uh, but, so are we all are we all watching the Oscars on Sunday? Is that the uh, is that the play? Is, is Ben Burgess uh, going to do the show with us? Yeah, sure. Well, then, fucking, I need to talk to you, Forrest, and then we'll. Uh, I'll talk to you. Are you going to be around uh, tomorrow? Your time, afternoon time. Yeah, I'll be. I mean, yeah, I'll I'll, I'll be around tomorrow. <laughs> Hunkered down. <laughs> <laughs> then I'll try to get yeah. a hold of you, and then we can try to figure out uh, logistically how how it will work. Um, I don't know if Pascal is going to be with us because I know he's doing uh, a show. Yeah, show. By the way, plug for this is Revolution Saturday. We have the great Norman Norman Finkelstein coming mm -hmm. on talking about cancel culture, author of the uh, Holocaust uh, industry. Um, Tomorrow, this is Revolution. We have Daniel Daniel Bessner. Daniel Bessner talking Daniel about Bessner. his review of Obama's book and maybe Obama's foreign policy. Uh, this is Revolution podcast uh, on your YouTube's live streams. You know, I uh, you know, guys, I do have a book coming out. If you uh, if you want me to come on and talk about it. Oh yeah. shit! Your book is is it out? Uh, no, it's out on uh, it's out of May first. Yes, come on the show. Uh, the we'll work out the dates. Come on the show. Let's talk about your book. Uh, the first time I want to say this is the first time I, I talked to Ben Burgess. Uh, I wanted to talk to him about his first book. And he was like, but I got this new book that I'm I think you were finishing it up, weren't you? Or you had just finished it. 
Uh, yeah, I think I'd finished a draft of it, but yeah, that's right. When you, when you interviewed me the first yeah. time, um, uh, it was, it was allegedly about the first one, but we did end up talking a bunch about the, uh, the, the, about the canceling uh, comedians. And there's a great clip, uh, that I've made of Ben talking about Dave Chappelle that I think is entertaining and fun to watch. And I made a killer beat underneath it. So <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's a good, uh, it's a good clip, but I, I should also, um, I should also say, actually, by the way, that that uh, that Chappelle album uh, that we were talking about uh, has a um, you know, there's a lot of stuff in there that that's uh, that's relevant to um, this conversation, not intentionally, because, mm-hmm. you know, he's he's not, you know, I mean, um, uh, you know, he's not in the business of, of giving political analysis, but the stuff that he uh, that he that he's uh, he's doing as as that he's using his grist grist for his comedy in there. Uh, you know, like the kind of social breakdown he's talking about in uh, Ohio, mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. you know, where, where where he lives. You know, talking about the uh, the, the heroin epidemic and you know and all of that is uh, is very relevant to uh, parts of this conversation tonight. But um, but yeah, so uh, that all sounds good. So uh, so yeah, <laughs> you, uh, uh, I, I was being semi facetious about that you know as the norman finkelstein thing reminded me you know because the uh uh the topic's similar but uh but i would obviously uh you know would obviously not say no to that invitation i had never talked to the guy i recently had to talk with him on the phone uh about coming on the show and uh he's intense yeah <laughs> fair enough Damn, the, uh, the daily the daily beast addendum to that uh <laughs> to that article we did the stream on about the dirtbag left when they had jason and pascal do it it's gonna be crazy <laughs> oh wow <laughs> no there was there was so we did we did a stream about the um there was a this this article that came out in the daily beast the the, the right the road yeah, yeah. and yeah. and somehow like they they use this the the holocaust denier smear which if you listen they use this true interview which if you listen to the three-hour interview He's talking in depth about like how much it hurt him that that like that, you know, someone whose family had died in the Holocaust, like would be smeared that way. Like he's talking mm-hmm. in depth about like everything with Alan Dershowitz and like how that was used to try to like tank his career, like mm-hmm. really, really like vulnerable, emotional stuff. And whatever, um, you know, the 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 guy writing that fucking art- article just goes Holocaust denier uh, Norman Finkelstein. Wow! And, yeah, he's a and he know th- th- that's another reason why he wanted so to his talk. Parents to were, were actually victims. Yeah, of the Holocaust. yeah, yeah. Yeah, so I'm pretty right. sure he knows it happened. The rest of the rest of, I think the rest of his family. I think his parents were the only. His parents were the two grandparents. Survivors. I think his grandparents got yeah. Killed. Like, yeah. but look, like, everybody like his his like cousins, aunts, uncle. Like, I think everybody was killed in the in the Holocaust. His family. I think his parents made it through. Um, and then that kind of f- like fully like fleshed out, I guess his his politics. Um, I don't know. So yeah, it's 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 abhorrent to, and and it was because of a the, the Zionism um, debate with Alan Dershowitz, where he where he basically said, you know, there's a bunch of factual errors in your book, and Alan and he's like, I don't think you should even be a professor, which is objectively the right position. Like Alan Dershowitz should definitely not be around, like younger people of any <laughs> <laughs> I was just gonna bring that up. Uh, I, I don't I don't want to uh, I don't want to say anything uh, especially about somebody as uh, as as litigation happy as Alan Dershowitz uh, but, uh, but 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 I'll 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 just I'll just um, 
My oh, views are not the views of my employers. Um. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, I'll, I will say this much, though, that uh, just before Jeffrey Epstein, um, you know, whatever happened there happened, uh, that uh, that when when it seemed like he was uh, he was going to have to, you know, that like there might be a trial where Epstein would be testifying stuff. Uh, Dershowitz's demeanor as he was doing like frantic denials and stuff on TV at, uh, he did anything when he was on pedophile Island. Uh, uh, Dershowitz, uh, Dershowitz seemed kind of sweaty and agitated about it and, uh, conclude from that what you will. Ben, but whatever happened there? <laughs> <laughs> I, um, I thought of the, the Phil, the Phil Leotardo, uh, car. Yeah, 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 exactly. Whatever yeah. happened there? Your exactly. animal cousin Tony Blundetto. <laughs> yeah, is one of the um, uh, is one of the things that made me uh, uh, made me happiest um, when I was uh, I was host co-hosting uh, Dead Pundits when we uh, we interviewed Adolf Reed and he uh, dropped some Sopranos reference uh, in the uh, in the middle of it and I had to stop the whole thing to like okay back up back up are you, are you a fan because 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 this is you know. <laughs> Uh, want to have that conversation, but um, in any case, uh, yep, this is so. Uh, this is the uh, the book canceling comedians while the world burns, a uh, critique of uh, the contemporary left. It's basically about uh, all of the ways that uh, the uh, the left as it exists now is not well suited to achieving its uh, its stated goals. Look, uh, it's, it's a. I mean, it's a. You know, I've been thinking about it since I read it last weekend. It's a, it's a really good book. I'm so. going to pick it up. Any case, uh, so uh, so yeah, I guess um, you can see uh, uh, at least uh, me and uh, and Jason Forrest on uh, Sunday uh, talking about uh, the uh, the Oscars. Um, I and actually before that, uh, we will have. With patrons, uh, we will try to sneak in another uh, <laughs> yeah, uh, Discord uh, Discord movie night. Um, you know, I guess it would have to be either um, either Friday or Saturday, probably maybe Thursday. I don't know, but what one do you of those. About watching. Uh, so yeah, have to figure that out. Either Nomadland or Five Bloods, I think. Um, but um, but anyway, it'll be one or the other of those. So. Um, that uh that will be uh yeah so i think we're gonna do um i gave you my my take on uh the five bloods i don't know if you've seen that pascal did you, the spike lee's movie nah man I'm, i wasn't gonna watch that propaganda <laughs> delroy lindo gave a fantastic performance i wasn't a big fan of the movie but delroy lindo crushed it Fair and the late, the late Chadwick Boseman also did it for the short time he was in the movie. He did a great job as well. Yeah. I, I think that it also plays into that narrative that we were talking about on Twitter earlier, which is like the, the redefining, I guess, of the yes. Vietnam era and, you know, 1960. That's, that's, that's why I'm not watching it. Yeah. You know you love Spike Lee, man. Stop. We're going to watch more Better Blues when we hang up this phone. I, I, mean, that, I like that's the only movie he made that I really like. Out of all of them is Mo' Better Blues? Yeah, I like Mo' Better Blues a lot. More than school days? School days is a really ridiculous attempt to try to talk about class and colorism. I don't, I I just, just, but the college. musicals in school days, good or bad hair? See if I can. It's funny. I, when, I, when I watched it when I was in college, 
the in butt. A, and in a black fraternity, I found it interesting because uh, I felt that he highlighted exactly the kind of things that made people that were under, you know, basically made these organizations worse want to become members of them because he popularized it in some ways. But uh, first step uh, show I ever saw was in school days. Yeah, but uh, uh, you know, I've been in force so quiet because the motherfuckers ain't seen school days. (laughs) (laughs) That man, um, yeah, that is actually a uh, that is actually a good idea. Uh, Kale is the uh, is the best kind of uh, movie nerd. And a couple weeks ago, he gave us a uh, uh, terrifyingly thorough uh, rundown of The Shining. But uh, I think uh, I think Sundays are his. Sundays are the day that he's trying to do the Lord's rest or whatever. You can no, um, oh, know. whatever. I remember, I, I remember um, texting him on Sunday, and he was like, "This is this is my day" or something. <laughs> all right, but I bet he would. I bet. I bet. I'll, I'll I'll try to hit him up. We'll see what happens. Well, anyway, um, so uh, so yeah, that uh, that sounds good. Uh, we'll uh, we'll say uh, that uh, there are probably going to be a couple of more uh, live streams over the course of the next week and a half. Uh, season two officially starts on uh, Monday. Uh, the uh, well, the first episode is on uh, Monday the uh, the third. Although uh, the day before it, we're restarting the uh, the Sunday night uh, debate breakdowns. Uh, so we're going to watch uh, Zizek Peterson because uh, we just passed the two-year anniversary, uh, and I uh, just found out uh, that uh, that uh, Slavoj Zizek is uh, is going to be joining us uh, for uh, for the first part of that discussion. So, oh uh, no shit! Yep. So, um, so should be really good. Uh, thank I gotta you. I gotta come along as producer and, and do the do the whole uh, stop start thing just so I can. See Zizek again. I mean, I met him when he did. I think briefly when he did the uh, TMBS panel with Cornell West. But oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah but yeah, I, I still I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, uh, thank you guys for uh, for 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 coming on. Um, I was almost gonna make some like um, really bad joke about like the you know that like you know basically play the character of being like the, the woke neoliberal creep who's talking about difficult conversations. You know, it's like, thank you, thank you so much for the difficult, the difficult conversations, but uh, episode of give them an argument is sponsored by Wells Fargo. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Don't we all wish, right? <laughs> right wing Candace Owens money. Yeah. No, it was the DeRay. DeRay. McKesson. The, yeah. Like he, he had a, he had a talks like a, like it was like Black Lives Matter something something and it was like sponsored by Wells Fargo. Kale like, <laughs> Brooks just commented. Kale Brooks, we're gonna hit you up on the social medias. <laughs> you just signed up for it now. You gotta take Pascal's place. Yeah, fair enough. Oh, uh, speaking of Kale, I should say um, that on Saturday uh, on uh, the Jacobin Weekend Show, I'm gonna be talking about the uh, the book there. Um, so, um, so check that out at, um, one o'clock, uh, on, uh, on Saturday on the Jacobin, uh, YouTube channel. Uh, but, uh, in any case, uh, thank you guys, uh, so much for, uh, for coming on. Uh, this, uh, this was, uh, this was really good. Uh, as always, I will, uh, 
I will see uh, most of the people uh, who are here on uh, on Sunday, I guess, maybe uh, maybe earlier if I can rope Jason into uh, uh, into doing the uh, Discord movie night, and uh, and I will uh, will see everybody um, who uh, who watch this uh, for uh, for the next uh, next live stream, which will definitely be by Monday or so, I think. Uh, so uh, sounds good. Left is best. <laughs>